are on Fan for Racing Radio. This is Thursday, October the 19th, and we're here for our Homestead 2 NASCAR Weekend Preview and Hot Topics. It's our co-host, Jay Huseman. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thank you, Shen. I know we got a lot of racing going on yet this weekend, and we're going to talk about all of it, but the truck series, it is go time. This determines who's in and who's out. Yes. To this the weekend, and then we've got the second race in the playoffs for both the Xfinity Series and the Cup Series for the round of 12. So next week, we find out who the final four are at Martinsville for both the Xfinity Series and the Cup Series. But let's go ahead and start for today. Uh, Jay and I are going to start with some upcoming short track races and news, and then we'll preview the penultimate ARCA West Series race at Madeira Speedway this weekend. Uh, They're going to race this weekend, and then they will be at Phoenix for their finale and determining who their championship is. Yeah, like I said, I mean, we still got a lot of other races going on, things that lead into that setup, but I am so excited for the truck race this weekend. Um, But these others, that's what sets up that final race, as you mentioned, to determine it. Um, But that's where we're at with the truck series. So let's talk about, I know we got some other short track and dirt track, though, as well. Yes. uh, After we do our short track and arc of West, series preview we are also going to preview today the nascar truck series xfinity and cup series playoff races all at homestead miami speedway and then of course our hot topic sound off will be uh as what we do every week as a final uh part of our episode so with that jay let's go ahead and get into the short track uh races that are coming up well, and you know, I'm going to be excited about this one, too, actually. saw so my friend, uh, Mr. Excitement, Spencer Hughes, post about headed north for October 19th, the Dirt Track World Championship, which is now at Eldora Speedway, and it's going to be covered at 6 p.m. on Flow Racing, as well as then the KKM Give Back Classic at Port City Raceway, and that'll be covered on Flow Racing at 7 p.m. Okay, now uh, that's the races that are happening today and tonight. Uh, So we'll move on now to the races for tomorrow in the dirt category. Uh, We have uh, one Dirt Vision event. That's the World of Outlaws Sprint Car Race, and that's going to be at the Devil's Bowl Speedway at 7.15 p.m. Again, that's on Dirt Vision. For Flow Racing, which is the rest of them that we have here, uh, I'm going to start with 6 p.m., the Dirt Track World Championship that uh, uh, that uh, Jay just talked about. We're talking day two at Eldora Speedway at 6 p.m. on Flow Racing. Then at 6.30, also on Flow Racing is the Short Track Super Series at Orange, Orange County Fair Speedway. And following that at 7 p.m. is the second day of the KKM Give Back Classic at Port City Raceway, 7 p.m. on Flow Racing. 
And at 8 p.m. on Flow Racing, we have the Comp Cams Late Models at Jackson Motor Speedway, 8 p.m. on Flow Racing. And finally, for Friday night, 8.30 p.m. on Flow Racing is the weekly racing from New Tulsa Speedway. Well, I'm going to have to do some studying here. I don't know if that comp cam wanna... is a replay from a race we, race we had there or if that's a different Jackson Motor Speedway because I'm not at the track tonight, so I don't know what that's about. <laughs> On the 21st, again, we're going to have World Outlaw Sprint Car Series at Devil's Bowl Speedway, 7.15 p.m. on Dirt Vision, and then jump over to Flow Racing, the Dirt Track World Championship, a wrap-up at Eldora Speedway, 6 p.m., the KKK Give Back Classic at Port City Raceway, 7 p.m. on Flow Racing. I believe all these, the rest of these should be Flow Racing. If they're not, I'll hit them up on where they're at. But the collar, Blue Collar Classic at Port Royal Speedway, that one actually is earlier at 1.15 at p.m., and then the USAC East Coast Sprints from Delaware International Speedway at 6.30 p.m. And then, Sharon, did you want to hit the, wrap it up with the short track ones? Yes, I'll go ahead and do the short track uh, events for October the 21st. We'll start with, at 3.30 p.m. on Flow Racing, is the Tri-Track Series Finale at New London Waterford, Waterford Speed Bowl. And that will be available on Flow Racing at 6 p.m. All of these are on Flow Racing. At 6 p.m., it's the Cars Tour. That's at Tri-County Motor Speedway. And at 7 p.m., it's the NASCAR Youth Series at American Motor Speedway at 7 p.m. Again, all three of those are on Flow Racing. And then tomorrow, I'm sorry, there we go. Sunday, I guess it would be the 22nd, October 22nd for some short tracks. You're going to have the Pumpkin Fest at Hudson Speedway. That is a time to be determined, but we'll be on Racing America. Yes, indeed. Uh, so definitely uh, a lot to look forward to in the racing world this weekend. Uh, I want to go over to uh, Racing America because I know there's some great stories over there. Uh, one of the stories we're going to be talking about later, if I, if you want to uh, get a preview of our Hot Topic Sound Off, uh, one of the things we're going to talk about is the first part of the Mics Are Hot from the Racers Forum. Uh, it's uh, got Jeff Gordon in the photograph. But what they're, one of the things he said in that article, if you want to read it, is that um, uh, he feels that the PR teams need to really focus on promoting team fan viewership. So developing that loyalty for the team, regardless of who the drivers are on the team, but uh, fans who are following the team and not necessarily the drivers. So that would be a switch for for NASCAR because so many fans are loyal to their drivers. Uh, so we'll we'll be that'll be an interesting conversation, Jay. It certainly is a different aspect, and I know we've talked about this on a couple of different levels. You talk about drivers specifically, but new ownership and leadership at some of these teams as the older generation uh, team owners 
either step aside or, you know, take a step back within the organization and new, new leadership comes in and Jeff Gordon being one of them. I mean, he's talked about that of his drivers being out there and doing different things, but now just looking at it, like you said, from the team aspect and you're right, no other sport. I mean, at football, you still have your, your quarterback, but there's more involvement in the team. The NASCAR, it kind of gets to be about maybe the owner, but primarily the driver. And there is so much more to it from a team aspect, um, especially when it comes to, I know third in line would be crew chiefs. There's a, quite a few crew chiefs we know now or get to know, but there's a lot of others. And where, they, where these top crew chiefs come from is generally within the team. Exactly. And a lot of times uh, we don't know who the team members really are. So I think that would be a good thing if we get to know who the team members are and uh, if there is a focus on that. Uh, So the traveling team, the team at home and so forth. But uh, now I'm going to move over, Jay to the Winchester 400. We talked about a confrontation last week between driver Stephen Nassi and Gio Ruggiero. Well, they've both been penalized now, and there's a statement about that, uh, those post-race penalties that were issued following the ASA SARS National Tour Winchester 400 at Winchester Speedway in Indiana. Um, they've been penalized for their involvement in the post-race altercation on the track's front stretch following the conclusion of the event. Per, per the ASA STARS National Tour General Rules and Procedures, Section 1 Conduct, Rule 1 paraphrased, paraphrased is unsportsmanlike conduct and or actions detrimental to the sport of auto racing. And Rule 5, fighting will not be tolerated. For Gio Rogerio, driver of the number 22, has been issued the following penalty, a loss of 25 uh, finishing position, championship owner, and driver points, a fine of $3,000, and placed on probation for all ASA events in the remainder of the calendar year. For Stephen Nassi, driver of the number 51, the, he's been issued the following penalty. The, la- the loss of 44 finishing position, championship owner, and driver points, and a fine of $4,500 placed on probation for all ASA events for the remainder of the calendar year. In addition, four individuals connected with the 51 team have been suspended for the remainder of the ASA STARS National Tour season and have been placed on probation for the first three races of the 24 season. Suspension includes the pits, the garage, the racing surface, and the spotter stand. Uh, that was released by the ASA Stars National Tour. So uh, I'm going to put that up on our on our hot topics for this afternoon as well. So uh, some interesting uh, penalties there. Well, then I won't go too in depth in it here, but yeah, I did want to talk about that. Uh, and it's one it's tough to talk about and give fans a, pr- a perspective of it. If they haven't seen the video, the video clip of it, not just was it a confrontation on pit road, and you saw, you heard that several crew members um, were suspended because there was a lot of other activity, as well as then the peel out with one driver and doing a burnout while still on pit road in the vicinity of other people. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I can say it's the ugliest situation I've seen, but certainly could have been, and truthfully, 
I think the penalty might have been a little bit light considering the ramifications that could have happened. Yeah, and and I, uh, Sal was on the show Monday, and he was saying that that was actually uh, Stephen Nassie's father uh, that was hit by the car that was doing that burnout. So that was a very serious situation, and um, I'm glad that the Winchester 400 or the ASA Star Tour uh, group has issued those penalties. Uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna reserve some more of my comments until later. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll keep biting my tongue and try to do the same. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, that sounds good. All right, so um, let's. Uh, is there any other news on Racing America you want to make sure that we point out? Well, with that, uh, further have... down, um, it w- was an interesting race. Uh, we talked about some of the names that were in that race. They also have the unofficial, I believe it's still unofficial, um, full rundown, some of the names that were in there, and you have some more storylines from that 52nd Winchester 400. So you want to check those out. I, I know Racing America has several that cover different parts of it. And we'll also go ahead and refer you to Short Track Scene as well as Flow Racing because uh, although we give you an idea of uh, many of the headline races that are taking place over the weekend, uh, they do a good job of uh, really showing you all of the racing that is available to you, uh, and it could include a short track near you. So uh, I would encourage people to go to Flow Racing as well. Uh, Now we're going to move on to the ARCA West series and the race that's going to take place this weekend uh it is it's the penultimate race jay if you will for the um arca west their rate their finale is coming up at phoenix but there's one more race to do uh before they go to phoenix and i gave you the wrong notes here didn't i you know, I was just looking at it as I was going to start looking at covering it. Uh, I hadn't noticed that this morning when I saw the notes. You're right. This covers Las Vegas. <laughs> Let me look real quick and see if I've got the correct notes. All right. Um, While you're doing that, I will talk about, talk about this of, of the point standings for the West um, while you're oh, trying to perfect. pull that up if you send them to me. With uh, with two races remaining, we had a one-point uh, battle going into this uh, for various reasons. Uh, decisions that were made, Landon Lewis no longer running that series, put a gap there. And I'm trying to pull up the point standings myself, but um, gotten a little gap. The owner championship is still well within play, but the actual points spread has gapped a little bit. And I was a little disappointed with that. I, I take nothing away from a team that runs to that level um, and puts together that good a season, just it was going to come down to a really tight battle and now not so much. So I was a little disappointed, but you still got to appreciate a team that puts together such a strong season. We've seen that in other series. Yes, indeed. And I'm looking here. I I guess we don't have uh, pre-race notes. Yeah, I'm not seeing pre-race notes for this, uh, so let's see if there's a pit box. All right, yeah, I don't know if I saw the pit box either. I do have this information. (laughs) 
Okay, right, here's uh, some. Okay, there is a pit box, uh, but the race will be this Saturday, October the 21st, at Madera Speedway. It's a third mile paved oval, and it will start at 8 p.m. Pacific time. That's 11 p.m. Eastern time. They'll race uh, 50 miles over 150 laps, and it will be available. Uh, on the radio at ArcaRacing.com, but they'll have live streaming over at Flow Racing if you want to watch it there. And I'm going to move over to the pit box now. Uh, homecoming awaits young West Series stars at Madera Speedway. Uh, with just two races remaining in the Arkham and Art Series West season, one of those events takes place this Saturday when the series returns to Madera Speedway, actually, for the first time since 2009, Jay. Yeah, that's a little surprising. I, I didn't realize that, but when we talk about this 50 Junior Homecoming ARCA 150 presented by the West Coast Stock Car Motorsports Hall of Fame, it's just the eighth series event at the .33 mile venue, and it dates back to 1973. And Jack McCoy is the winningest driver in West Series history, won that inaugural race at the track back on May 5, 1973. And then Bill Sedgwick, he won the next race at Madeira for the West Series. That took place in 1989. Three races were held at Madeira also in '95. Uh, and the 96 seasons with Doug, George, Butch Gilliland, and Lance Hooper all collecting checkered flags. Mike Duncan won the next event for the series in 2003 with Eric Holmes winning the most recent West Series stop at that track in 2009. It's the 5150 uh, Junior Homecoming ARCA 150 progressed presented by the West Coast Stock Car Motorsports Hall of Fame. Now, what are we going to watch for, Jay? Well, when we look at, in recent years, the Madero Speedway Junior's late model division has helped prepare a number of talented racers for the future on this ARCA platform. And that's why Saturday's race is appropriately named the 550 Junior Homecoming ARCA 150, since many of these drivers the compete in the event. 5150, Jay. Say that again? It's 5150. That's why I was trying to how you use that, that name the way they have the five in there. All right, 5150. Um, yeah. But uh, talking about some of the, we're going to talk about some of the previous graduates of the Madero Junior Late Model Program. Okay, headlining that list is the West Series Championship leader, Sean Hingarani. He's the first two-time winner in the junior late model division at Madera with only two races left in this season. Uh, Higurani is within striking distance of clinching that series championship, but there's some other drivers uh, that are going to be looking to uh, best him. Well, and a pair of my brothers, this Tyler and Tanner Reif, both West Series regulars this season, are also winners in that junior late model class at Madero. Both are again entered in this Saturday's uh, race with Tyler Reif piloting the number 13 Ford for Todd Souza and then Tanner Reif back in the number 16 Chevrolet for Bill McAnally Racing. Okay, now in addition to the three Madera Speedway Junior Late Model Division champions are among those entered this Saturday 
as uh, as of Tuesday morning. They include the 2019 champion Joey East, the 2020 champion Bradley Erickson, and the 2021 champ- champion Brody Armtrout, who is also making his series debut in the number 77 Toyota owned by Joe Nava. And I mentioned this a little bit, but that battle for the Arkham Menard Series West ownership championship uh, remains tight as the number 17 fielded by Cook Racing Technology holds a nine-point advantage on Venturini Motorsports number 15 driven by Hingarani. Caden Honeycutt will again drive that number 17 in the hopes of adding more points to the team's slim advantage. So driver's side, you have Hingarani. On the owner's side, you actually have the number 17, Cook Racing Technologies, leading that. All right. So let's take a look at the uh, 5150 Junior Homecoming ARCA 150 uh, entry list because there are quite a few drivers on this list, Jay. And I'm going to start with the 05 of David Smith. He hails from Sydney, British Columbia. He'll be driving for his own team with Brandon Carlson on top of the pit box but he'll have shockwave marine suspension seating on the side of his Toyota. When we mentioned coming right out of Madero, California there, that number 88 will be Joey East with Basila Farms and Richwood Meats on the side of the Mike Naki owned and crew chief Ford. Okay. Uh, out of Smartsville, California, uh, that's a pretty cool name, is Brody Armtrout. He'll be behind the wheel of the number 77, Rex MD, Fiddler on the Roof, and Jan's Towing Toyota for Joe Nava. And Roger Bracken will be on his uh, crew chief. We've got a couple coming out of Las Vegas, Nevada, one of them being Kyle Keller in that number 70 for Steve Bohan on that Ford. Brian Kaiser going to be calling the shots, though, for the setting the stage, Battleborn Racing Argus Construction Machine. Chuck Dose here will be on top of the pit box for the Philpot Racing uh, Chevrolet. Uh, Philip, I'm sorry, Ryan Philpot will be the driver behind the uh, wheel of his own race team of the number 52 Hacienda Pools Matos Equipment Rentals Chevrolet. They hail from Livermore, California. And the number 50 is the Tim Huddleston-owned Ford. Driver's going to be Trevor Huddleston, again, at least up in the points out of Agora Hills, California, but has ties back to Vegas with the High Point Racing Race Car Factory as sponsorship, and Jeff Schrader as the crew chief. All right. Uh, crew chief for the number 49 is Tommy Hurst. Uh, that Keneally Ford, number 49, Monty Tipton, will be behind the wheel. He hails from Mill Valley, California. He'll be driving the Tether Studios Third Eye Ford. And the leadership on the number 41, you got Chris Loudon as the owner, Tony Jackson, crew chief in the Ford, but the driver is going to be Nick Gionides out of Northridge, California, with Jan Towing on the side. And in the John Wood Toyota this week is R.J. Smotherman. Uh, behind the number 38, he hails from Pahrump, Nevada. Mike Holleran will be his uh, crew chief for the, the Toyota. One we haven't seen in a while, the number 33, 
It's actually Rod Nealon as the owner and crew chief of the 33 Chevrolet, but it's P.J. Pedronicilli at uh, Sonoma, California, with Pedronicilli mobile bottling on the side. Chris Bray will be on top of the pit box for the Joe Farre uh, Toyota this weekend. It'll be Bradley Erickson behind the wheel of the number 23. He hails from Phoenix, Arizona. And on the side of his Toyota, he will have the sponsor, LNS Framing, SPS Spencer Clark Foundation. The number 21 is obviously a family affair when you got the Nascimento joiner, Philip Brothers, Paul Cardicero, Chevrolet. Let's see, the owner is Eric Nascimento Sr., Mike Nascimento, the crew chief, and Ethan Nascimento as the driver out of Montica, California. From Willow Park, Texas, is Caden Honeycutt. He's driving the number 17 MMI SunWest Construction Chevrolet. Sean Samuels is the crew chief for that McGowan-owned machine. We talked about the number 16, and that's a West Series staple. It's a Bill McAnally Napa Chevrolet this week being driven by Tanner Reif out of Henderson, Nevada, with John Camarelli calling the shots. Kevin Reed Jr. will be on top of his pit box for the Bill Venturini-owned Toyota, the number 15, driven by the series points leader, Sean Hingarani, hailing from Newport Beach, California. He'll have the familiar Mobile One on the side of his car this weekend. And the other half of the duo brother talked about, Tyler Reif is in the number 13 Ford for Kelly Souza. Michael Munoz with him in his ear. And he brings the Central Coast Cabinets out of Henderson, Nevada as the sponsorship. And Takuma Koga is back again from Nagoya Hitchi, Japan. He'll be driving his familiar number seven GR Garage Toyota for Jerry Pitts. And uh, there's not a crew chief mentioned here, but I'm thinking Jerry Pitts is probably going to be doing a double duty here well it's more than double duty as he's listed as the crew chief of the number five <laughs> jerry pitch racing toyota so uh he might be rather busy watching more than one car but driver that number five is going to be dustin ash out of las vegas nevada all right and uh another nascimento this time eric nascimento is going to be driving the number four 5150 Gloves Not Drugs Impact Transportation Chevrolet, again owned by his dad. Ty Joyner will be on top of the pit box, and of course uh, he'll be driving that number four from Ripon, California. Another Central Coast Cabinet sponsored Ford, but this one is the Sousa number three, as Todd Sousa is the driver. Kelly Sousa listed as the owner comes out of Romas, California, and Jason Dickerson, the crew chief there. Another driver from Madera, California, is Robbie Keneally. He'll be behind the wheel of the number one Keneally Ford. Charlie Wilson will be on top of the pit box for him, and his sponsor this week is Setting the Stage American Swim Academy Cover Ease. So uh, that does it for our entry list for the ARCA West race out at Madera Speedway this weekend. 
Well, and real quick count there, I didn't, I wasn't sure if we cracked 20. It looks like 21 drivers listed on the entry list. So big field there for the West Series. It is indeed. Okay, now there's a lot of information for you over at ArcaRacing.com, including a, a really um, uh, interesting article about the Arkham and Art champion Jesse Love how astute development propelled Jesse Love to that Arkham and Art Series championship. And uh, a lot uh, for folks to to uh, know about uh, going on within the ARCA platform. Always a lot Always of good articles here. over there on the ARCA homepage, yes. Yes, indeed. All right, uh, we're going to go now to our NASCAR Top 3 Series. There, It's going to be a triple header this weekend out at Homestead Miami Speedway, starting with the Truck Series. The NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series will be racing the Baptist Health Cancer Care 200 on Saturday, October the 21st at 12 p.m., it will be televised on Fox Sports 1 starting at 11 a.m. Eastern, and radio coverage is available on MRN and Sirius XM NASCAR Channel 90. They'll be racing a distance of 201 miles over 134 laps. The first two stages are 30 laps each, stage one inning on lap 30, stage two on lap 60. The final stage is 64 laps, 74 laps, and that will end on lap 134. We have a lot to cover, Jay. We do. And some of the stuff here for the NASCAR Craftsman Chuck Series pertains to this year and some to next. What we got for this year is Marco Andretti is going to return to the NASCAR Craftsman Chuck Series for the final two races. He'll be returning behind the wheel of the number seven Spire Motorsports for the final two truck races of the 2023 season. Andretti made his first start for Spire Motorsports earlier this year at Mid-Ohio Sports Car Course, starting seventh and finishing with a respectable 19th place finish. The third generation NTT IndyCar Series racer has made 251 IndyCar starts with two victories, six pole positions, and 20 podium finishes. He's also started 18 consecutive Indianapolis 500s. And additionally, Andretti is the reigning, was the reigning superstar racing experience SRX Series champion, beating Ryan Newman and Bobby Labonte to the title. That was last year. Newman won it this year. Okay. Uh, another uh, news announcement that came out uh, this week is Matt Mills is uh, going to be joining Nice Motorsports full-time for the 24 season. So uh, it was revealed that he'll join the organization full-time in next season, taking over the number 42 Nice Motorsports Chevrolet from Carson Hosevar, who is uh, transitioning to a full-time NASCAR Cup Series ride with Spire Motorsports. Since 2016, Mills has made 23 Truck Series starts. He's also made 123 Xfinity Series starts, and he's made one Cup appearance. Now, uh, fast-forwarding to this year, Mills has made two Truck Series starts at Richmond and Milwaukee. He's a 26-year-old who recorded a career-best finish of fifth at Richmond. 
So uh, we'll look forward to seeing Matt Mills behind the wheel of that uh, Nice Motorsports number 42. Well, and this one is a return. Staying put, Corey Heim set to return to Tricon Garage in 2024. They announced this week that the 2023 Truck Series regular season champion, Corey Heim, is going to return to the organization for a second consecutive full-time campaign aboard that number 11 Toyota Tundra TRD Pro. The 21-year-old is currently aimed amid a deep playoff run as he clinched his first career berth in the championship four with the victory back at Bristol Motor Speedway on September 14th. The Georgia native has a landmark season with three victories, three poles, 11 top fives, and 18 top 10 finishes, and a series leading 507 laps. So that's good as far as uh, fans. (laughs) What's that? I was just going to say, he's had a fantastic season. Uh, Most certainly, and uh, I think is one of the favorites as far as the championship. Absolutely. Okay, I'll need some help on this next one. We're going to cover the playoff drivers that are in the play. Well, actually, they're they're involved in a playoff bubble shuffle, perhaps. Uh, We're talking about Grant Infinger, Ben Rhodes, Ty Majeski, and uh, I believe it's Zane Smith outside the championship four cut line. So after the uh, round of eight opener that took place at Bristol Motor Speedway, uh, Corey Heim was the first to punch his ticket into the championship four round at Phoenix. But now they have just one race left in the round of eight, and the competitors are starting to feel that heat, especially with the cut line sitting tight heading into the Homestead, Miami. The round of eight finale looms closer. The drivers sitting below that cut line are the four drivers I mentioned, Infinger, Rhodes, Ty Majeski, and Zane Smith. So let's take a look at each driver bottom up. All right. Let me see Ben Rhodes as he's – actually, they're listed bottom up. All right. So we'll go with Zane Smith, right? Uh, driver, the number 38 front row motorsport Chevrolet, has gone on to the title round the last three years. Last year. Uh, Last season, a reigning Craftsman Truck Series champion advanced to that championship four round by scoring two runner-up finishes in the round of eight, including a 17th place finish at Talladega Super Speedway. But Smith has experienced both the highs and lows this postseason. Finished fifth at Lucas Oil Indianapolis Raceway Park, then 12th at the Milwaukee Mile, fifth at Kansas Speedway, then 24th at Bristol Motor Speedway. Talladega, unfortunately, did not pan out well for Smith as he spent nearly half of that race sitting idle in the garage with a slipping clutch while the field whisked by. Now, although the 24-year-old could conceivably advance on points, realistically, Smith is likely facing that must-win situation as he sits 36 points back from the final transfer spot currently held by rookie Nick Sanchez. Okay, that's why I was lost. You went top down instead of bottom up. Okay, so I'll, well, I'll go then. They Normally they list them go, opposite, but this time they actually did because uh, Smith is at the bottom. Okay, okay, I got gotcha. you. Okay, I will then go to Ty Majeski. He completely dominated the round of eight last year. We won both at Bristol and Homestead, besting Zane Smith in those two races. 
The Steamboat Wisconsin Native is currently 19 points back from the final spot transfer spot. And although the deficit is significant, Majeski and the number 98 Thorsport Racing Ford team will need to maximize those next three stages if they want to compete for their title again. Now, the 29-year-old burst into the playoffs with momentum after leading 168 laps at Richmond during the regular season finale, but he did end up finishing second. Majeski completely dominated the field at Lucas Oil Indianapolis Raceway Park. He took the checkered flag after leading 179 of 200 laps. But after Indianapolis, the 98 team lost some steam. Uh, he finished 7th at Milwaukee, 18th at Kansas, 19th at Bristol, and now he uh, ended the, the, his last race, 21st, at Talladega. Now, this is where the pressure cooker really cranks up. You got driver of the number 23 GMS Racing Chevrolet Grant Enfinger is three points back from that final transfer position. And this is the first time below the cut line since the playoffs began. The Fairhope Alabama, Alabama native has done uh, decently well this postseason. He was 12th at Lucas Oil, Indianapolis Raceway Park, first at the Milwaukee Mile, 17th at Kansas Speedway, and third at Bristol Motor Speedway, and 13th at Talladega. Now, although the 38-year-old has never secured a victory at Homestead, he has secured the pole position and a second-place finish before. Okay, next up is Ben Rhodes. He scraped his way into the round of eight by just five points. The uh, 21 Craftsman Truck Series champion now heads to Miami, <laughs> heads to Homestead, ranked sixth in the playoff standings. He's just five points back from fourth. That's the final transfer spot. And in six starts at Homestead, the Louisville, Kentucky native has an average finish of 14.2. Now, last year, the driver of the 99 Thor Sport Racing Ford managed a sixth-place finish at the 1.5-mile oval. But unfortunately for the 26-year-old, the playoffs haven't been off to the best start so far. He finished 16th at Lucas Oil Indianapolis Raceway Park, 16th at Milwaukee, 25th at Kansas, 7th at Bristol, but he did have a second at Talladega. Like his competitors, he's going to need to maximize these next three stages if he wants a chance to compete in the Final Four at Phoenix. Now, looking at those bottom four, I'm going to give you their uh, average finishes. Uh, in six races, Grant Indiger has an average finish of 11.8, Ben Rhodes at 14.2, Ty Majeski at 5.5, and Zane Smith at 19.5. Some interesting stats there. Um, now, Ty Majeski and Zane Smith only have the two races at the track, where Grant Infinger and Ben Rhodes have six. So um, uh, the only one with a DNF is Zane Smith. He's got one DNF in that category, one top five and two top ten, one top ten. Ty Majeski has uh, one win, one top five and two top tens, and um, Ben Rhodes has the two top tens. And Grant Infinger has one top five and three tens. But then we're next we're going to be talking about the top four drivers that are above the cut line. That's Corey Heim. He has an average finish of 5.0. Carson Hosevar, let me do it this way. 
Uh, Christian Eckes actually has an average finish of 6.0. He's third in the standings. Nick Sanchez only has one race there, and he happens to have won that race. Uh, and Corey Heim, uh, this points leader, has one race at that track. He's got one, he's, and he, that was a top five finish, so his average finish is 5.0. So some interesting stats there. Uh, but what are the clinch scenarios for those drivers, uh, Jay? And, again, this is why I'm so excited for this race, because it is that go or go home. Um, with the win at Talladega, it was by a non-playoff driver, Brett Moffitt. Now only one driver has secured their spot in that championship four-round at Phoenix Raceway, and that's Corey Heim with that win at Bristol. So we have scenarios uh, where they can – clinch a spot with a chance to move on to that championship four. To clinch via points, if there's a repeat winner by a driver who cannot, a repeat winner or a win by a driver who cannot advance to the next round, you can clinch by being ahead of the fourth winless driver in the standings. The same requirements would be true if the new win comes from among Carson Hosovar, Christian Eckes, or Nicholas, Nick Sanchez. So Carson Hosevar, in that case, would need 33 points to clinch, which is about half the points, a little over half the points you can get in one race. Christian Eckes would clinch with 46 points, uh, 47 if it's Sanchez that wins. Nick Sanchez needs about all of them at 53 points. Grant Enfinger, 55 points, and then would need some help if the win came from Sanchez. And Ben Rhodes, Ty Majeski, and Zane Smith, they all need help. Now, if the new winner is Grant Enfinger or another winless driver lower in the standings but still eligible to advance to the next round, then you got to be ahead of the third winless driver. Harusavar would need 36 points, and a big jump right there. Christian Eckes would need 49. And then you got to add Sanchez and Enfinger to the list of the other three that would need help. Simplest way, win. Because any of the drivers can win in the, win alone in advance. Hosovar, Eki, Sanchez, Enfinger, Rhodes, Jeske, or Zane Smith. Just win and you're in. That's it. Just win. <laughs> Make it simple, right? <laughs> That's right. Make it okay. simple. Just win. Just win it. Okay, let's look at the series playoff outlook. I told you kind of who is above and who is below. Uh, if we if we go from the below, Zane Smith is actually, as we mentioned, 36 points back. Uh, and Ty Majeski, 19 points back. Ben Rhodes, five points back. And Grant Infinger, three points back. Uh, Nick Sanchez, on the other hand, is, not, is three points uh, above the cut line. Eckes is nine points above the cut line. So those four drivers, Eckes, Sanchez, Infinger, and Rhodes, are probably the most vulnerable. It could go either way for those four drivers. Uh, and then, of course, Carson Hosevar has a 23-point advantage, but he's uh, a win would really secure him in there. And then Corey Heim, of course, has that win. So we'll see how it all works out. Well, and as they head to, the South, to South Florida for that penultimate race, uh, two weeks ago they got to regroup and go over their strategy as they are now headed to the Homestead Miami Speedway for the Baptist Healthcare, Health Cancer Care 200, which is that eighth, uh, the playoffs round of eight finale. And it will decide 
who will make it to the championship four round in that race for that title in Phoenix. Now, Miami Homestead Speedway was built as a key part of plans to keep the city of Homestead, uh, help them rebound after devastation caused by Hurricane Andrew. Grand, groundbreaking began on August 24th, 1993, which was exactly one year after the hurricane hit. The track soon opened in November of 1995. The 650-acre facility is active more than 280 days per year and features both the 1.5-mile oval and a 2.21-mile road course. The 1.5-mile oval has hosted 26 Craftsman Truck Series races since its inaugural event on March 17, 1996. This is a race won by Dave Rezendis, piloting the number seven Jeffrey Bodine Motorsports Ford. Notably, there's been 23 different race winners. Kyle Busch leads the series, though, with three wins at the track, while playoff driver Ty Majeski is the most recent winner in 2022. The 2023 season, though, marks the second the Speedway has hosted the round of eight finale in the playoffs. That would be 22 and 23. It was home to the championship race in the playoffs from 2016 to 2019, but also landed a spot on the regular regular season schedule from 2020 to 2021. Now, only one race during this round of eight finale has been won by a non-playoff driver. That was Daniel Suarez in 2016. Let me go back and look at that. Mentioned him, and that was uh, at Phoenix in 17. It was also at Phoenix. Johnny Sauter picked up that victory, as well as 2018 when it was Brett Moffitt out there in the desert. Oh, we got one more. I take that back. Stuart Friesen, 2019 was the last season it was out at Phoenix, and that was Stuart Friesen picking up the victory. In 2020 and 2021, it was Grant Enfinger and Zane Smith who got victories. And then I mentioned Ty Majeski getting the victory last year right there at Homestead, Miami, in this race number eight. Or, sorry, the finale of round number eight. Now, there's three previous round of eight finale winners who are currently in the championship for playoff hopefuls. That's Grant Enfinger. Grant Enfinger, Zane Smith, and Ty Majeski. And they're all with that one goal I mentioned, win and you're in. We look at practice and qualifying. They'll kick off with the Baptist Healthcare, Health Cancer Care 200. That'll be tomorrow, October 20th, starting at 4.05 p.m. Eastern Time. All right. I can't wait for that race. It's going to be a fun one to watch. All right. Uh, and I'm... I'm- uh, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, but uh, uh, I'm curious to know who those final four are going to be. All right, uh, let's move on now to the Xfinity Series. They're in the second race of their round of eight, and <laughs> they are racing the Contender Boats 300 at Homestead this Saturday, October the 21st, a doubleheader day at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. It will be televised on the USA Network starting at 2.30 p.m. ET. And uh, radio is MRN and Sirius XM NASCAR Radio. They'll race 300 miles over 200 laps. First two stages are 45 laps each, stage one ending on lap 45, stage two on lap 90. And then the final stage is 110 laps ending on lap 200. 
Well, some quick notes here for the Xfinity Series, and this one's a big one. I know fans are going to be excited. Two-time Xfinity champion Dale Earnhardt Jr. returns to the series here at Miami. NASCAR Hall of Famer Dale Earnhardt Jr. will be making his second NASCAR Xfinity Series start of the season this weekend at Homestead Miami Speedway in his number 88 Junior Motorsport Chevrolet. Earnhardt is a two-time series champion going back-to-back in 1988-99, and he'll look to make his seventh series start at Homestead Miami Speedway this weekend. In his previous six starts at the 1.5-mile track, he's picked up two top fives and four top tens. In his series debut at Bristol a few weeks ago, Earnhardt qualified 15th and raced his way into the lead of leading set 47 laps before a fire started in the car that relegated him, unfortunately, to a 30th place finish. Yeah, that was that was really something. Okay, now John Hunter Nemechek, he's going to pull, pull double duty down in South Florida. He's right now leading the Xfinity Series standings and will have a full weekend ahead of him. Uh, as he'll be racing in two different series. Uh, After running the Contender Boats 300, he'll get behind the wheel of the number 42 Chevrolet for Legacy Motor Club, the car he will drive full-time next season for his first start of the Cup Series uh, in 2023. He's made a total of 40 starts in the Cup Series, uh, dating from 2019, uh, 2020, and then in 22, he's posted three top tens. In his last start in the Cup Series last year at Homestead, he finished in 27th place. So that seat time is going to mean a lot to John Hunter Nemechek this week. It certainly is, but as we're talking about Homestead Miami, it's not the uh, final race, but it's going to set up for it, and so we're going to scout the playoff field when it comes to Homestead Miami. There's two races now left for these drivers to prove they have what it takes to compete for that championship at Phoenix Raceway coming up in November. And the eight playoff contenders will give it everything they have this weekend. Now, this one, it looks like they are listed opposite so i will go down to the bottom sharon if we want to go every every other one oh okay all right actually you want to do, they're pretty short you want to do two by two yeah let's do two by two all right i'll start with the 12th place that'll be sheldon creed he's in the final playoff spot 41 points back creed has made one start at the track back in 2022 2022, where he finished 17th. Next up the list is Sammy Smith, and he's 35 points under the cut line as a rookie. He'll be making his series debut this weekend at Homestead Miami Speedway. In sixth place is Sam Mayer. He's right behind Sam Mayer, who is 16 points under the cut line. He's made one start at the South Florida track that was last year. He posted a fifth-place finish. Just above him is Emmer Smith, and he's just outside that cut line. Smith heads to Homestead with one start last year when he posted a seventh-place finish. And the cut line itself would be Cole Custer, as he's currently in that final championship four spot on points and 15 points above that cut line. He is the only playoff driver with a Homestead Miami win coming back in 2017. 
in his four start. He's posted that one win, three top fives and three top tens, leading a total of 292 laps. In his two stints at the track in the series, he's posted runner-up finishes in 2018 and 19. And Austin Hill is the one in third spot. He's 19 points above the line. Now, Hill heads to the track with just one start under his belt coming last year in 2022, and it was a ninth-place finish, leading 19 laps. All right. Uh, Top two drivers, beginning with Justin Algauer. He has the most experience in the playoffs, and he's second in the standings. He's made 14 starts at Homestead, Miami, posting three top tens and leading a total of seven laps. But then we're going to take a look at our number one driver, John Hunter Nemechek. He's at the top of the list, and he's made two starts at the track in 2018 and 19. In 18, he posted a third-place finish, and in 19, he finished sixth. He's led a total of 52 laps at the track. Next up, we'll look at the clinch scenarios uh, with a win by non-playoff driver Riley Earps just last weekend at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. All four championship spots are up for grabs, so we'll take a look at the clinch scenarios as they head to South Florida for the penultimate race of the round of eight. Uh, so we've already established that nobody's uh, clinched their spot in. So what do they need to do to uh, clinch this weekend? Now, if there's a win by a driver who cannot advance to the next round, the following drivers can clinch by being 56 points above the fourth winless driver in the standings. The same holds true if the win comes from among John Hunter Nemechek, Justin Algauer, or Austin Hill. Now, John Hunter, uh, all of them need a win to get in. We'll just say that. <laughs> now, if there's a new winner, and it's going to be pretty much across the board, if there's a new winner from Cole Custer and another winless driver, lower in the standings but still eligible to advance to the next round, the following drivers can clinch 56 points above the third winless driver in the standings. So, again, they all need wins, all eight drivers. Uh, John Hunter, Algauer, Hill, Custer, Smith, Mayor, Sammy Smith, and Sheldon Creed. So I, I think you're right, Jay. The easiest way to say that is go get a win and you're in. <laughs> That's right, because then Only you don't need driver. no help, don't need, to depend, don't need to depend on anybody else's finish. <laughs> it's all about you and what you do. And I, I wouldn't realize that just talking about it, it was a non-playoff winner that won that first race how much that affects, um, you know, these clinch scenarios, because that means everybody is still that tight in competition. So, yeah, that one's going to be exciting. Exactly. Now, as we set the stage there in South Beach for Homestead Miami Speedway, the Xfinity Series headed down for the Contender Boats 300 on Saturday, October 21st. The 1.5-mile South Florida track has hosted 29 different Xfinity Series races, produces, producing 22 different race winners and almost as many pole winners at 21. Only five races, though, have been won from the pole or the first starting position, as most recently done by Harrison Burton back in 2020. Now, the name Nemechek is a popular name at the track, thanks to Joe Nemechek, who sits as the winningest driver with three victories, and also has the most lap, uh, lead lap finishes at 11, 
and a laps completed at 3,514. Although he hasn't made a start in the Xfinity Series since the 2020 season, now his son and current playoff contender, John Hunter Nemechek, will look to keep that Nemechek name prevalent as he heads into the weekend for his third-ever start at the track within the Xfinity Series. This will be the second time that Homestead Miami Speedway plays host to the fifth race in the Xfinity Series playoff, which is the second race in the round of eight. From 2016 to 19, the track was again home to the championship race. Daniel Suarez in 2016, William Byron in 17, and Tyler Reddick in 18 and 19 took the checkered flags in those seasons. In 2020 and 2021, the track was not a playoff uh, track, but was on the regular season schedule. That means only two previous winners are entered into this weekend's Contender Boats 300. That would be Cole Cole Custer and non-playoff driver Myatt Schneider. Custer, in the playoffs contention, snagged his win in 2017, beating runner-up Sam Hornish Jr. by 15.405 seconds, leading 182 of the 200 laps. Schneider, on the other hand, he'll be getting behind the wheel in number 19, Joe Gibbs Racing Toyota, for his fifth Xfinity Series start of the season. His win came back in 2021 by a mere .085 seconds. Wow, talk about two different uh, scenarios. Scenarios, yeah. Now, not only does Custer know what it takes to win at Homestead, he also knows what it takes to win that second race of the round of eight or the 31st race of the overall season. In 2018, he won that second race of the round of eight. At that time, it was at Texas Motor Speedway. And he went on to run in the championship uh, race that season where he ultimately finished second in the standings. So when we look at this uh, slot for the race, race number 31 or second of the round of eight, going back to 2016 through 2020, it was hosted at Texas. You had Kyle Larson win it in 2016, Eric Jones in 2017, Mentioned Cole Custer in 2018. It was Christopher Bell in 2019. And Harrison Burton, we talked about him in 2020. In 2021, it was Kansas Speedway in this slot where Ty Gibbs picked up the victory. And then last year, 2022, it was Noah Gregson right there at Homestead, Miami. The Xfinity Series will kick off their weekend. It'll start Friday, October 20th with practice at 6.05 p.m. Eastern time followed at 6.35 Eastern time with qualifying. And that'll be covered on the USA Network as well as streamed on the NBC Sports app. I'm so glad I got this last segment, Jay. Uh, I want to talk about Riley Earp scoring that victory at Las Vegas Motor Speedway to become the 15th different winner of the 2023 season. He accomplished what every driver strives for when they get behind the wheel of a race car, and that's a trip to victory lane. But his first win in the Xfinity Series came after 139 starts. 24 top fives, 68 top tens, and three Xfinity Series playoff appearances in 2021 and 22. Erbst is the 15th different winner in the Xfinity Series this season, tying uh, this season with 
1987, 2004, 2014, and the 2018 seasons for the fourth most different winners through 30 races. Now, uh, Riley Erbst is actually a Las Vegas native, so it was really special for him to be able to share that moment with 60 of his closest friends and family. He definitely put on a show. He led 103 of 201 laps and crossed the finish line with the largest margin of victory for the season uh, and the series with an impressive 14.9 seconds over the Xfinity Series standings leader, John Hunter Nemechek. Uh, he thought it was around 10 seconds, and uh, someone actually corrected him and told him it was 14.8. Well, they told him it was 15 seconds, and uh, Raleigh was ecstatic about that. Although Earps didn't make the playoffs this season, he's aiming to carry that momentum into this weekend's race at Homestead Miami Speedway, a track that has treated him fairly well. In his four starts, he's posted three top tens, and his only finish outside the top ten at the track was in 21 when he raced his way up to an 11th place finish after starting from the 29th spot. I was so excited for Riley Earps winning that race. It's one of those, and it's amazing. Make sure I'm off mute. Yep, okay. Um, to see somebody not not just get their first win, but to do it at a home track like that. We've talked about that. A lot of drivers, to them, a home track win is almost more important than winning at Daytona or any other Crown Jewel event, just because to be at, at your home with your family and friends, um, yeah, that is so amazing. We saw it earlier uh, with, Sam Mayer winning at Road America back home in Wisconsin area. Yeah. Uh, and I know I've heard Denny Hamlin talk about it winning at Richmond and others. And especially, like I said, to get that first one. And a lot of us as fans have felt like Riley Herbst, it's been coming. It's been so close, just right there. So to finally see it happen, yeah. And, I, and I'm glad you got to experience that, Sharon, because, yeah, that is certainly one of the most emotional victories you will ever see. Yes, indeed. And uh, I always had faith in Riley. I'm glad it, I'm glad it all worked out. Uh, NASCAR Cup Series. The next race is the Forever 400 presented by Mobile One at Homestead, Miami, this Sunday, October the 22nd at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It will be televised on NBC starting at 2 p.m. Eastern with pre-race coverage along with MRN and Sirius XM NASCAR Radio. They'll be racing a distance of 400.5 miles over 267 laps. Uh, first stage is 80 laps, ending on lap 80. Second stage is 85 laps, ending on lap 165. And the last stage is 102 laps, ending on lap 267. And as usual, there's a whole lot of stuff here. <laughs> well, one thing we talk about, some things that have happened, and this year we could watch them as they happen as NASCAR Cup Series milestones that are going to be hit. So let's see, Kevin Harvick, and this one's important because he'll be done at the end of the season, but he'll have his 825th NASCAR Cup Series start. That'll be at Martinsville, along with Daniel Suarez at 200 Cup Series starts. Ryan Priest will be at 150, and Ty Gibbs is 50th. Those are all at Martinsville Speedway coming up in two weeks yet. Then at Phoenix Raceway, Denny Hamlin will make his 650th Cup Series start, and Ricky Stenhouse Jr. 
they'll be making start number 400. Got one category of drivers with 10 or more. Uh, when it comes to win, Kyle Busch leads all active drivers in career wins at 63. Kevin Harvick has 60. Denny Hamlin, 51. Brad Keselowski, 35. Martin Truex Jr., 34. Joey Logano, 32. Kyle Larson already up to 23, and Chase Elliott right behind him at 18. But it was William Byron who cracked that 10 on this year. Organization wins. These are a couple of big ones. We saw one broke already. But the Wood Brothers at racing is on the cusp of a milestone victory in the Cup Series, looking for their 100th NASCAR Cup Series win this weekend. Hendrick Motorsports leads the overall um, with wins, organizations in wins with 301 now, um, followed by Joe Gibbs Racing at 207. RFK Racing has 141. Team Penske right behind them, 138. Richard Childress Racing has 116. Mentioned the Wood Brothers Racing sitting at 99. Stuart Haas Racing, 69. Trackhouse Racing already has five. 2311 also with five. Front Row Motorsports with four. JTG Daughtery, two. And College Racing is two as well. And then Spire Motorsports with one. When we look from the manufacturer side, Chevrolet currently has 850 wins the most all-time in the Cup Series. Um, Ford has second most when it comes to all-time in the Cup Series at 727. And then skip down to Toyota in fifth most at 179. The reason I skipped third or third and fourth is they're no longer active, but Dodge has 217 and Plymouth 191. And then we're looking for, I guess, Daniel Suarez this week to add to this one. The number 99 cars next win will be the 50th in the NASCAR Cup Series. So that's always kind of interesting. Look at some of those things. You just don't realize while they're happening. Yes, indeed. Uh, We've got a list of dignitaries that are going to be on hand to honor Kevin Harvick at Homestead Miami this weekend. Uh, His full-time Cup Series uh, career is coming to a close this weekend or not well he's got this race martinsville and phoenix but kevin harvick is going to be honored by several individuals who've made an impact on his career prior to the start of the forever 400 presented by mobile one uh homestead miami speedway announced last week that senior advisor to nascar mike helton uh, Stuart Haas Racing's crew chief, Rodney Childers, and his family will serve as key dignitaries in getting the race started on Sunday afternoon. Grammy Award-winning superstar and Trackhouse Racing co-owner Armando Christian Perez, also known as Pitbull, will serve as the honorary pace car official, riding along at the front of the field as the stars of the Cup Series prepare for one of the final races of the season. Helton, as we mentioned, is serving as the honorary starter of the Cup Series uh, race this Sunday. Harvick has developed a close bond over his career, and Helton will wave the green flag as Harvick crosses the start-finish line for his final Cup Series race in South Florida. 
Our crew chief, Rodney Childers, and his family, his wife Katrina and twin sons Brody and Gavin, have been named Grand Marshals for the event. They'll stand alongside Harvick's car on the grid to honor Harvick one last time at the iconic track by saying the most famous words in motorsports to signal the field to fire their engines. Pitbull, also known as Mr. 305 and Mr. Worldwide, will ride along as the pace car leads the field to the green as the honorary pace car official for Sunday's race. He recently released his new Spanglish album, Track House. The title is a reference to the Cup Series team Trackhouse Racing, which he joined as co-owner in 2021. Pitbull is currently performing alongside Enrique, Enrique Iglesias and Ricky Martin on a trilogy tour, which will canvas North America throughout the fall. All of the South Florida vibes will be felt at the track as Cedric Gervais is set to provide the pre-race entertainment Manu Monzo will perform the national anthem, and Puerto Rican rapper Milky Woods will serve as honorary event official for the race. So Grammy Award-winning DJ and Miami Beach resident Cedric Gervais will get the party started as the pre-race entertainment during the playoff race weekend. Gervais won the Grammy as producer for the best remix of his version of the popular Lana Del Rey song, Summertime Sadness. And in 2013, he also had 5.5 million monthly listeners on Spotify and had acting roles in the films Mile 22, Deepwater Horizon, Patriot's Day, and Pain and Gain. Latin entertainment artist Manu Manzo will perform the national anthem prior to the start of the race. He was a a nominee for the Best New Artist at at the 2015 Latin Grammy Awards. Monza released her new album, Luno and Germinus, in May of this year. Puerto Rican rapper, is it Mikey Woods or Mickey Woods? (laughs) I think it's Mikey Woods. He will serve as the honorary event official of the Forever 400 presented by Mobile One. He's the most popular for his songs of Estamos Clear, Alcoba, En lo oscuro sin tarde o temprano, and he's collaborated with other Latin Puerto Rican, Dominican, and Venezuelan artists and producers such as Bad Bunny, Wisin and Yandel, Nadi, Natasha, Ozuna Noriel Faruco, and more. Woods also has 5.4 million monthly listeners on Spotify and one is <clears throat> and is one of the biggest Latin music artists in the game today. Uh, that's quite a uh, prestigious list of uh, dignitaries there. It is, and that's all as we get ready. Once we get on the track, that's where it's going to pick up. The action will pick up. We're going to look at the playoffs championship four round as we look to establish those final four. Now this season, just one driver has secured their spot in that championship four round for the 2023 NASCAR Cup Series playoffs, and that's Kyle Larson. We're going to take a look real quick at uh, ones who have previously under spot throughout the years in this prestigious and exclusive round that grants that postseason contenders that one shot at the title. 
Now, the inception of the elimination-style format for the playoffs of the NASCAR Cups, excuse me, took place back in 2014. Since then, just 14 drivers have earned a spot in that championship four-round, with seven of the 14 securing multiple appearances in the final round. Total look at uh, five appearances. There's one, two, three, four, four drivers that have made five appearances. Joey Logano in 2022, 20, 18, 16, and 14, even numbered years. Martin Truex did it in 21, 19, 18, 17, and 15. Kyle Busch, his have come in a group there of 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. Kevin Harvick did it in 2019, 18, 17, and then back in 15 and 14. So that puts Denny Hamlin fifth on the list with four, 2021, 20, 19, and back in 2014. Chase Elliott's at three in 2022, 21, and 20. Brad Keselowski has a pair, 2017 and 2020. Eighth on the list is a tie with uh, multiple drivers here of one, uh, Christopher Bell, Ross Jastain, Kyle Larson, Jimmy Johnson, Carl Edwards, Jeff Gordon. And Bell's came in 2022 as well as Chastain's. Kyle Larson in 2021, Jimmy Johnson in 2016, Carl Edwards in 2016 as well, Jeff Gordon in 2015, and Ryan Newman back in 2014. Now, those four drivers currently tied for the most NASCAR Cup Series championship four appearances I mentioned. Uh, Logano, Truex, Harvick, and Truex, or Kyle Busch, sorry. Uh, Truex is the only one of the four this season that has an opportunity to break that tie and solely take the lead in the championship four round appearances. Uh, Denny Hamlin also has the four appearances. He's got the opportunity to make his fifth and possibly tie for the lead as well, depending on who else does. The record for the youngest driver to earn a spot in the NASCAR Cup Series Championship four round, that's held by Joey Logano, earned his first appearance in the Championship four round in 2014 at the age of 24 years, five months, and 23 days. Second youngest, that'd be Chase Elliott in 2020 at 24 years, 11 months, and 11 days. The record on the other end, the oldest driver to earn a spot in the championship four round, that's NASCAR Hall of Famer Jeff Gordon. Earned his spot in his final year of racing, uh, full-time racing. He was 44 years, three months, and 18 days. When you add all that together, the average of age of a driver making it into their first appearance in the championship four round is 32 years old. Now, this season, four of the eight drivers vying for a spot in that championship four round, they're looking to make their first appearance in that final round. William Byron, Tyler Reddick, Ryan Blaney, and Chris Buescher. Also, in total, seven different organizations have qualified for the championship four round in the Cup Series in that range from 2014 to 2022 of the elimination-style format. Joe Gibbs Racing leads that series, leads the series in numbers of drivers that have placed in the final round at five, and the number of appearances they have earned in that championship round of four is at 14. Now, each season, four spots are available. Since 2014, Joe Gibbs Racing again has secured 14 of the possible 36 total championship four-round spots. That is a 38.8 percent. Um, Number. That's pretty impressive. 
Again, they've had four or five different drivers in those 14 uh, appearances. Team Penske has two different drivers that has put the team in there seven times. Hendrick Motorsports, three different drivers have put them in the appearance uh, category six times. Stuart Haas Racing has one driver, has done it five times. Furniture Row, one driver for two times. And then Trackhouse Racing and Richard Childress, one driver and one appearance. Okay, I'm going to skip this next section and go to our playoff drivers. I think that's what people are most interested in. And uh, these are the drivers that are on the outside looking in. Uh, with the first race in the books from uh, Las Vegas, there's two races to go. And uh, there's uh, the postseason contenders that are below the championship or cut line. Uh, so... Uh, they're going to have a challenge before them as they try to earn their position into that final four at Phoenix. So following the opener at Las Vegas, Joe Gibbs Racing's Christopher Bell finds himself in fifth place, just two points back from his JGR teammates, Martin Trex Jr. in third, and Denny Hamlin in fourth. Now tied in points, current, and they're currently tied in points at 4,070. Joining Bell below that cut line is 23-11 Racing's Tyler Reddick in sixth. He's 16 points back. Team Penske's Ryan Blaney in seventh. He's 17 points back. And RFK Racing's Chris Busher in eighth, 23 points back. So uh, keep in mind, there's only two more spots that can be earned by wins, leaving at least one spot reserved for the driver to get in on points. So we'll take a look at those drivers uh let's see do you want to go ahead and start jay and then we'll go every other one all right well i'll take a look here at chris busher number 17 rfk racing ford headed to homestead miami speedway ranked eighth in the cup series playoff standings following las vegas at 23 points back from the cut line as mentioned on the year busher is looking to make the championship four round for the first time in his career become the first driver from rfk to make it to that final four, uh, final playoff round all time. In 33 starts on the year, Bushers posted season-to-date driver rating of 84.5, which is eighth-best. Collect three wins coming in Daytona and totaling eight top fives and 15 top tens. He has one single-stage win and led 237 laps. Average finish is 12.2. Looking specifically at Homestead, Miami, Busher has put up one top 15 in 17 starts, giving him an average finish of 19.714 at the track, which is 18th best. He ranks in the top 25 in two key pre-race loop data categories. Average running position is 20.527, which is 22nd best, and then driver rating of 64.1, which is 21st best. Okay, next up on the list is Ryan Blaney. The num- he drives the number 12 team Penske Ford. He arrives at my- Homestead, Miami in seventh place after Las Vegas, and he's 17 points back from the cutoff line. This year, Blaney's looking to make the championship for a round for the first time in his career and become the third different driver from Team Penske to earn his playoffs final round. He would join Joey Logano who uh, did it, uh, what, five times in 14, 16, 18, 20, and 22. And Brad Kozlowski 
who did it in 17 and 2020. In 33 starts this season, uh, Blaney's had a season-to-date driver rating of 85.7th best. He's also put up two wins at Charlotte and Talladega. He's got five top fives, 15 top tens, and he's won four stages and led 362 laps. He's managed an average finish of 15.2. At Homestead Miami Speedway, Blaney's put up one top five and one top ten in eight starts. Finish is 18.625 at Homestead Miami. That's 16th best. And he ranks in the top 15 in two key pre-race loop data data categories. Running <clears throat> average running position at fifteen point eight three six, that's fifteenth best, and driver rating at seventy nine point seven, which is fourteenth best. Next up on the list is the twenty or the forty five of twenty three eleven race in Toda, and that's Tyler Reddick. He flies down to Homestead, Miami, ranked sixth in the Cup Series standings after Vegas. 16 points back from the cut line for the championship four round. Reddick is looking to make the championship round for the first time in his career as well and become the first driver from 2311 to make that final round. 33 starts on the year. Reddick has put up a season-to-date driver rating of 90.3, which is sixth best. He's got two wins coming at Austin and Kansas, nine top fives, 15 top tens, as well as two poles. He's picked up six stage wins along the way, led 469 laps. His average finish of 15.5 on the season. Looking at Homestead Miami Speedway, Reddick has picked up two top fives and two top tens. His average finish is 13.667 at Homestead, which is ninth best. He also ranks in the top 10 in the two key pre-race loop datico categories. The average running position is 12.963, which is 10th best, and his driver rating of 93.0 is 8th best. Plus, he's also won twice at the South Florida track in the Xfinity Series in 2018 and 19. All right. Uh, Next up is Christopher Bell, driving the number 20 Joe Gibbs Racing Toyota. He's uh, ranked fifth in the Cup Series playoff standings following Las Vegas, and he sits two points back from the championship for cutoff. Now, this year, uh, Bell is looking to make the championship for a round for the second consecutive season in his career. And 33 starts this year, Bell's managed to put up a season-to-date driver rating of 91.1. That's fifth best. He's posted one win and that was at Bristol on dirt. He's got nine top fives and 17 top tens, and a series-leading six poles. He's had four stage wins and led 573 laps. He's earned an average finish of 12.8. At Homestead Miami Speedway, Bell has one top ten finish and three starts at the 1.5-mile track. His average finish is 13.0. That's seventh best. Plus, he ranks in the top 20 in two pre-race loop data categories. Average running position at 15.418, that's 14th best, and driver rating at 75.1, which is 16th best. He finished 11th in last year's Homestead-Miami race. So uh, there might be a little bit of deja vu for one of our championship contenders. 
I was just going to say, Sharon, I feel like we've talked about this before. No, I'm just kidding. Denny Hamlin teeters <laughs> on that championship four-round cut line there at Miami. Uh, just like last year, Joe Gibbs Racing's Denny Hamlin heads into this eighth race for the playoffs at Homestead, teetering on that championship four-round cut line in fourth. This time, just two points up on his JGR teammate, Christopher Bell, who's in fifth. Now, Hamlin, not able to earn a spot in the final four round last season, but this year hoping to get his fifth career appearance. Hamlin will be one to watch Sunday as at Homestead Miami Speedway is one of his best tracks. In 18 career Cup Series starts at the 1.5-mile speedway in South Florida, he's picked up three victories, 2009, 13, and 20 but also five top fives and 12 top tens. Average finish at the track is 9.833, which is second best among the playoff contenders. And he's led a total of 397 laps. So definitely one you got to look at. Okay. Well, now we'll talk about somebody who's uh, struggling to stay afloat, and that's Martin Truex Jr. He looks to right his postseason ship at Homestead, Miami. Uh, from Joe Gibbs Racing, the 2023 Cup Series regular season champion has been struggling through the first seven races of the playoffs, posting his first top ten finish last weekend at Las Vegas. Now the New Jersey native is looking to ride his playoff ship this weekend at Homestead and earn his spot into the championship four round the sixth time in his career. Uh, he's been there 15, 17, 18, 19, and 21. Truex currently ranks third in the postseason standings following the round of eight opener at Las Vegas. He's up by just two points on the championship four-round cutoff. Now, so far, Truex hasn't had the postseason run he's expected after winning the regular season championship. He made seven starts uh, so since then, putting up just one top ten finish. His average finish during the playoffs this season is an unrecognizable 19.4, but Homestead Miami is one of Truex's better tracks this weekend, and his postseason fortunes could turn around. Truex has made 18 starts at Homestead Miami, collecting one win in 17. He's got seven top fives and 12 top tens. His average finish at the track is a stout 9.667. That's the best among playoff contenders. And I like to emphasize that because I really want to see him win this weekend. <laughs> well, another one looking to win and make a first is William Byron. Uh, his H- Hendrick Motorsports teammate Kyle Larson beat him to the punch in securing his spot in the championship four round. But William Byron, the 2023 Cup Series wins leader with six victories, is looking to secure his spot for the first time in his career. And with all the triumphs he's had throughout the postseason thus far, this might be the year he's done it. As it's been a career year for Byron, with 33 starts, he's three poles, those six wins, 13 top fives and 19 top tens, leads the series in stage wins with eight. His average finish in the season is 11.3, and he's looking to become that fifth different driver at Hendrick Motorsports to earn a spot in the championship for around all time, joining Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson, Chase Elliott, and Kyle Larson. And when we look at the next race on the schedule at Homestead, Miami, it's uh, the 24 team is led by crew chief Rudy Fugel. They're ready for it. They've won at the 1.5-mile track in 2021, 
sat on the pole and finished 12th last season. In total, Byron has made five starts at Homestead, putting up one pole, one win, and two top tens. Okay. Uh, let's uh, look at the Oh, Larson, Larson becomes the third active Cup Series champion with multiple titles. Looks to become. Uh, it's an exclusive list with just 17 names on it all time, and currently only two active drivers, Joey Logano and Kyle Busch, have earned a spot on that prestigious list. Uh, this season, Hendrick Motorsports driver Kyle Larson has become the first playoff competitor to secure his spot in the championship for a round and is ultimately looking uh, to get his name on that impressive list. Larson's last appearance in the championship for a round was in 2021 when he earned his championship. Before he starts counting titles, though, he needs to get through this weekend at Homestead, Miami, but don't expect him to slow down uh, because Larson has made nine starts at Homestead, Miami, putting up one win last year and five top fives. His average finish at the track is .7, and he spent 529 laps out front. If Larson were to win the titles this season, he would join the uh, multiple uh, the list of multiple season champions, and uh, that list includes drivers like Jimmy Johnson, Dale Earnhardt, and Richard Petty with seven, Jeff Gordon with four, Dale Waltrip, Yarborough, David Pearson, Lee Petty, and Tony Stewart with three, and then Joey Logano, Kyle Busch, Terry Labonte, Ned Jarrett, Joe Weatherly, Buck Baker, Tim Block, and Herb Thomas all have two championships. So it's going to be an exciting weekend at Homestead, Miami this weekend. But uh, for right now, we are at the top of the hour, and that means it's time for our NASCAR Hot Topic Sound Off. And did it, oh, here it is. And I'm going to bring uh, Mike into the queue here. Hey, Give me a second. It's still sparkling. Glad to be back. It feels like it's been a minute. <laughs> it has been. Uh, it's good to have you back, Mike. And I know also uh, Brian Everly will be joining us up here in just a few minutes. Uh, so, Mike, why don't you start us off with the first hot topic? And then we'll catch Brian in when FC joins in. Well, unfortunately, breaking news, I just saw a message from Brian. He said he got pulled into a meeting, so he might not be able to make it. It just might be the three of us today. Um, oh, I'm sorry said, to hear that. Uh, yeah, it is what it is, you know. It happens sometimes. But uh, I'd like to bring up one that, uh, that Jeff Gordon actually brought up in a racers forum a couple days ago. We really talked about how, Teams should look into expanding fan loyalty to be to the race team as opposed to the current model where fan loyalty really seems to be tied to the individual driver, probably after that down to the car manufacturer and then way down the list before they actually are uh, a fan loyal to the team itself. I'm interested to hear your take on that. All right. Uh, Jay, what is your take on that? Well, first off, and I know he had an angry face there with it. You're right. I just saw that where Brian said he wasn't going to be able to make it due to a meeting, and that's unfortunate. But um, this this concept, when you talk about investing in a team, uh, 
I think there is some today, but you're right. It starts with the driver. Most of the time, uh, when you look at it, I would say it is either driver or manufacturer um, that have the two biggest ties when you talk about something. And I think about a fellow team member here um, at Fan for Racing, though. Tommy is a 24 fan. He went from Jeff Gordon to uh, Chase Elliott, who had it for a year, but then William Byron. So there is some team investment, but it is not the top priority. And I think Jeff Gordon's on something as far as at least elevating that. And Sharon, you and I talked about this with some of the, in this day and age, some of the things that can be done. I know we've talked about like the pit crew challenge, highlighting the team. And they've done certain segments where they go through and list all the different members on the team when it comes to the road crew anyway, the pit crew. Um, But there is so much more than that. And the thing that, that I find funny is you mentioned some top crew chiefs, Ray Everham, and I'm going to use Hendrick Motorsports just because I'm most familiar with that, but Hendrick Motorsports of Chad Canales, Ray Everham, Steve Latart, they all came from within the shop working. Uh, I think Steve Latart was the one that was sweeping, sweeping the floor at Hendrick Motorsports. Tire changers or car chiefs before they moved up into the crew chief spot. And there is a tie to certain crew chiefs. You know, a few years back, you really didn't know crew chiefs. But that one's at least elevated a little bit. And I think that's what Jeff Gordon's looking to do is not just pick out single ones, but the team as an entirety. So I think there is some benefit to it. Uh, I don't know if it'll ever achieve the level of driver investment, manufacturer investment, or organization investment but it certainly has some value and and another aspect to look at. And that's what I like. Jeff Gordon's looking at things differently, you know, trying to bring bring a different perspective just to garner interest, whatever it be. Um, So I think it's a good move. And and I applaud Jeff Gordon for stepping forward and saying, hey, let's try this. Yes, indeed. I agree with you. I I really think that – you know, I've often wondered about it because in other motorsports, and I think you said this, Jay, uh, you see that happening. People follow the Bears or the Cubs or the Sox. Uh, and if the team changes, they're still following the Bears, the Cubs, the Sox, uh, the Blackhawks, whatever that team is. But in uh, racing, is very, very different. They follow the driver uh, mainly. They have a favorite driver that they follow, and uh, they stay with that driver. Now, a few people, like you mentioned today, uh, do follow the manufacturer. They're big on Chevy or Ford or uh, Toyota or, in the day, (laughs) the Dodges or the uh, Pontiacs or whatever. But uh, it, it seems like... They have never really followed an organization as a whole. Now, there are exceptions to that. A lot, there are people who follow Richard Childress Racing, and they're not going to go anywhere else. They're only going to follow Richard Childress Racing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, uh, same thing with Hendrick Motorsports. A lot of people are very loyal to Hendrick. But as a whole, um, uh, we don't see people follow the organization as much. Uh, a lot of organi- a lot of those teams are trying to work on that. They mentioned RFK doing some things uh, to highlight their team members uh, by putting out videos and such on social media. I know Team Penske does a lot of that. Um, but 
as a fan base, I don't think too many of us have actually latched on to um, an organization and said, that's my team, and follow it like I would, say, the Cubs or the, the, the Bears or whatever. So it really is something that I think would be a plus for the NASCAR as a whole if they were to do that. Now, there were some other people that were mentioned in this article, and uh, that includes uh, uh, Brad Keselowski and Heather Gibbs, who uh, say that they're doing some things to try to uh, address that and try to garner a team loyalty from NASCAR fans. So that's going to be fun to watch and see how successful they are if they're able to, to make that happen and get that team loyalty uh, thing going here in NASCAR. I think it would be a good thing if they do it. Uh, I know we've always got people who resist any kind of a change, uh, but um, uh, it'll be interesting to see if uh, we see an evolution that takes us in that direction. So we'll see what happens. Mike, what are your thoughts? You bring up a really good comparison, and it's actually the same comparison that Gordon brought up in his statement, where in other sports, traditional stick and ball kind of sports, the fans tend to be loyal to the team more so than the individual players. Even big-name players like Tom Brady, most New England Patriots fans remained Patriots fans, even when Tom Brady moved down to uh, Tampa Bay. And you see that with uh, other sports as well. LeBron James moving out of Cleveland. I'm willing to bet the majority of Cavalier fans did not become Miami Heat fans when LeBron James left Cleveland. So having that model apply to NASCAR, it makes sense. But in terms of how you make it happen, it's going to be very difficult. Traditionally, dating all the way back to the early times of the sport, NASCAR has been very focused on the individual drivers. If you go up to anybody, whether they're a NASCAR fan or not, you probably could get them to rattle off the names of half a dozen or so legendary drivers that we've had throughout the history of the sport. Richard Petty, David Pearson, Dale Sr., Jeff Gordon himself. But you really need to find somebody who's a, a, a pretty deep fan of the sport where they can start naming the teams that those drivers drove for. Even drivers like Jeff Gordon Richard, or, uh, or Dale Earnhardt Sr., who spent the majority of their career driving for the same team owner, a lot of people who aren't particularly well invested into the sport may not realize that and may not be able to come up with the names of Richard Childress Racing and Hendrick Motorsports, despite those long-term relationships that they had with their extremely successful drivers. How we make this happen is going to be the difficult part. This isn't like other changes in the sport where you could just do it from the top down. NASCAR can't just say, well, we're going to be following teams now, and that's how it's going to be, kind of like they did with, well, we're doing playoffs now, and that's how it's going to be. You can't really force a change like that on fan behavior and fan attitudes because at the end of the day, the decision of what driver or organization to support is the decision of that individual fan, and you can't just force them to change their mind. So the question becomes, if you want this change, how do you make it happen? I think we're probably in the best position that we've ever been in order to try and push a change like this because of the people who are currently in ownership positions at these teams. You've got Jeff Gordon at Hendrick Motorsports, the executive uh, vice chairman there. You've got Brad Keselowski at RFK, Denny Hamlin at 2311, as well as several non-driver celebrities who are involved with these teams, for example, Pitbull over at Trackhouse, as well as Michael Jordan at 2311. I think leveraging 
those big names that have their, uh, their established fan bases, I think would go a long way to bringing that recognition and notoriety to the teams that they represent, as opposed to leaning almost exclusively on the drivers to build that notoriety. So you trot out Jeff Gordon as a representative of Hendrick Motorsports or Pitbull as a representative of Trackhouse. I think that's going to gain a lot more recognition for those teams that those owners represent. The other piece of it, and Jay touched on it, is to highlight the, the contributions of non-driver team members. Uh, I, I'm with you all. I really, really like the, the pit crew challenge that they did at the All-Star race, and I'd like to see them bring it out to more races. I understand there's some logistics and practicality of making that happen every week. However, I would like to see ways that we could highlight the contributions that these pit crews make to the, to the car, not just on race day, but the, the preparation that it takes and their contribution to the overall success of that team. It should not be ignored. Also on that, instead of just having driver appearances, why not have appearances by other members of the team? Maybe they won't be as popular as the driver, but I'm willing to bet there would be a lot of people who would be interested in hearing about how, for example, a tire changer or a jackman contributes to the overall success of the team and what it takes from their position in order to be the best, most, most successful uh, member of the team in that crew, crew position and what they can do in order to improve themselves and therefore improve the team. I think broadening that scope, I think, will go a long way in terms of changing the recognition model away from being almost exclusively driver and manufacturer-based to being a little bit broader and getting that recognition for the overall teams that, uh, that Jeff Gordon is talking about. With the franchise or charter model, I think that also plays into it as well because we have these established teams and charters, uh, and it's a lot more I guess the word you could use is fixed in position than it was in the years past. Yes, we've had some long-term teams, and we do still have teams come and go. But in terms of stability of team ownership, I think it's probably more stable than it ever has been, which further positions the sport to pivot over to having that recognition for the team as opposed to the individual driver. Okay. Uh, Jay, your follow-up. Yeah, I think there is actually, especially in this day and age uh, with social media, The teams can do it through their own platforms, um, but also it can be involved all the way up to the NASCAR NASCAR top level. And I think about, I know when we have the pit crew challenge, they did it, uh, and I'm trying to think of which television partner did it when it came to at least winning. When they put up the driver winner, they'd list the entire entire team members. And again, that's the pit crew at least – involved in it but highlighting it i know we have the fastest pit career pit stop during a race put up the names of those that are involved you know and, and maybe specifically even break it down into position you know per jackman or tire changer um you know and there, and there have been a few you talk about the iconic um oh man i just lost his name chocolate myers uh gas man for dale earnhardt and the flying aces so there, too, drivers can make a huge impact when it comes to victory lane. Yeah, they thank their crew, but maybe, you know, naming some of them. And we've seen that on some drivers. Uh, I think college racing, when I think of it, is one that probably does more about talking about their entire team than anybody else. Um, at least as I can think of off the top of my head, there's still been a few others but I think that that there are so many different avenues that can be done. We just haven't seen done on a regular basis. And, and I think that's what Jeff Gordon's uh, point is, is it's got to be a consistent um, thing. The more that information is out there and people absorb, they're going to start seeing and recognizing. So, And I think different 
as mentioned, the open mic um, program. There, there are so many different ways it can be done. It's just a matter of whether or not teams, television partners, or other media platforms are willing to invest it and put it out there. As Mike said, if you were to have something at the track, um, it depends on the level of race fan, too. I, I'm one I certainly would. Um, and I think back, and I'm trying to remember, I think it was a Bristol race. One of the races walking in, yeah, walked in next to, and it was the entire team, but at that time, I believe he was with Matt Kenseth at Roush uh, Fenway, or at that time just Roush, Roush Racing, but uh, Drew Blickensdurfer and that crew. So, yeah, we did talk to the crew. Depending on where you stay in the area, the hotel you're at a lot of times um, has different crew members you get to talk to. It's just not done on a high-level media platform to everybody. Yeah, that's true. And, and uh, Mike, you brought up a good point as well when you said that it's not going to be an easy task. Uh, but here's one word I'm going to put out there, and that's evolution. Uh, this sport is already evolving, and things don't always happen overnight, and this is not going to happen overnight either. But it is already starting. Uh, they mentioned Joe Gibbs Racing has done uh, a lot of videos that feature a number of their pit crew members. Uh, but I think it has to go further than that. I think we we do need to do some features uh, of those teams and the entire team and who those members are on Sundays or on Saturdays or uh, whenever there's a race. Uh, there needs to be a team that's featured, uh, and maybe each week you choose one team to really feature and highlight that team so you can learn more about it. Or we do these things on Netflix now. There's a lot of streaming that's going on at Netflix, and um, uh, it, and they're talking about they're doing uh, behind-the-scenes coverage of what's happened uh, during the playoffs. And we'll get to watch that in January. But what if they did some behind-the-scenes coverage of the pit crew and the preparation at, back at the uh, uh, back at the um, I want to say office, but I, I'm struggling for the word. But where they the garage at home? Uh, what if you did some behind-the-scenes coverage of what happens to get the car ready and and uh, feature the people that are working on that car? Because there's a lot of people that are on those um, that are back at home. They're good mechanics uh, and and superstars uh, as far as knowing their craft. But um, there's also a lot of people on the pit crews that come from other organizations. They come from other sports, and now they're working in NASCAR as a pit crew member, uh, and those people could be uh, highlighted. The female people that are involved in motorsports uh, on the pit crews uh, and featuring them as individuals. Uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity to really feature some superstars in each, each category uh, behind the scenes. And uh, somebody mentioned the pit crew challenge. Uh, maybe we need to do that a little more often throughout the season, uh, not just once, but uh, two or three times. And, and, Jay, you may have mentioned that. Um, and Brad Keselowski brought up another good point, I think, as well. Uh, he's now a team owner, and he says the investment in building 
the driver star power was once the initiative of the primary sponsorship partners. Nowadays, the burden rests more and more on the shoulders of the race teams, and how the sport is currently laid out has become a massive gamble to teams to invest in heavily in building a specific driver's brand. Brand, you know, you think of Rusty Wallace, and what brand do you immediately think of? Miller Beer. Um, you think of Jeff Gordon, and the first thing that comes to your mind is DuPont. Uh, it's not like that anymore because all of these different drivers have different sponsors, and the sponsors aren't investing in the entire year or always. A lot of times it's for specific races. So that's where we've kind of lost that driver branding as well. So uh, if you if you pair up that driver with that organization and the other members that are are uh, behind the scenes, if you will, for that driver, uh, I, I think you can move the needle uh, as far as that evolution of focusing on a team and getting brand loyal getting fan loyalty to the team uh, that would include a specific driver, for instance. Uh, maybe within the Hendrick Motorsports, you're, you're a fan of that team, but your driver is William Byron or Kyle Larson. Um, so it could be broken up that way, but they're part of that Hendrick Motorsports organization. So, yeah, I'd like to see that happen. I think it's a tall order, but I think there's a lot of opportunity that they could make some things happen. So we'll see uh, how this evolution progresses. And, uh, Mike, I'm going to hand the mic to you now. You kind of mentioned it. It's going to be a challenge and really a balancing act in order to enact this change, if this is a change that NASCAR and these team owners want to move towards. Right now, NASCAR bases most of their advertising on the star power of their drivers. So the balancing act is going to be how do you build the loyalty and interest in the individual teams without torpedoing your current marketing strategy of marketing the drivers? That's going to be a really difficult balance because at the end of the day, the star power in NASCAR will almost certainly always revolve around the drivers. Yes, you have the model of traditional stick and ball sports where for example, a quarterback on a football team or a pitcher on a baseball team, they may be the most important position within that team. However, I would say that the broader contribution of the individual team probably goes a little bit more beyond than, than what you have at NASCAR. As important as our pit crews are and the, the shop guys back at the race shop uh, and wherever that team may be based, as important as their contributions are, they still are only participating in the race for – probably cumulatively two minutes total out of the entire race versus you have the defensive side of a football team where they're on the field for literally half of the game. Same thing for baseball. You've got your hitting lineup uh, that's going to feature all your different players. And then you've got everybody else on the field when they're playing defense and you have those more organic opportunities to highlight these individuals without taking away from the race. If we start doing too many features on pit crew members during a race, I can immediately see the complaints, and I'd probably be one of them saying, hey, why are you talking about the Jackman while they're not doing a pit stop when there's live racing under green flag on the racetrack? So that's going to be kind of the hard balance that NASCAR and the team is really going to have to strike if this is a change that they're looking to make. I'm interested to see what direction they take it, because I do support 
uh, a lot of these, uh, these, these race teams. It's kind of how I ended up becoming a more of a broad Hendrick Motorsports fan. I grew up as a Jeff Gordon fan, exclusively Jeff Gordon, number 24. That was it. But then when he retired, I kind of had that same thought of, well, he was kind of like the quarterback of a football team, right? I'm not going to stop being a Miami Dolphins fan because the quarterback retired. I'm still going to be a Miami Dolphins fan. So I kind of saw it as at the time, the 24 team, they got a new driver, but they're still the same race team. And then I kind of broadened that out of, well, yeah, but they're also part of a bigger organization in Hendrick Motorsports. So why shouldn't I be a fan of the broader organization? So having that kind of connection, I think, is the retirement of a lot of really popular drivers in the late 2010s, Tony Stewart, Jeff Gordon, Dale Earnhardt Jr., and others, I think there was an opportunity that may have even been missed a little bit to, to push this change. And maybe it wasn't right at the time because we didn't have the kind of ownership in place that we have right now who's interested in it. But I think that was probably the best time uh, at that point in order to push that argument of, you've always been a Tony Stewart fan. You should still be a fan of Stewart Hawks racing because, yeah, the the driver may be different, but we're still the same team. Um, Making that push now, I think it's still – the opportunity is still there, but I think it may be a little bit steeper hill to climb. So – seeing which direction they go with it, I'm really interested to see how that plays out. We probably aren't going to see a resolution on it anytime soon because it's going to be a natural evolution and a forced change I think would uh, end up doing more harm than good. So we'll have to see how this plays out. Yes, indeed. Okay. Uh, Jay, do you want to bring up our next topic? Certainly. Uh, We saw this, uh, I want to say it was mid-season. I don't remember exactly when, but... NASCAR sent out word to the teams of stop playing games on restarts. Since then, we have seen a few penalties. I believe we had two um, through the weekend at Las Vegas. Um, But we've seen several throughout. um, And Tyler Reddick gave an interview on uh, what he thought on it. So Mike posted it up of what we think about it. Okay, Mike, your first step. Well, if there was anybody who ever said that NASCAR favors Chase Elliott and always always gives them the, the benefit of the doubt and isn't willing to call penalties on them, I would like to direct your attention to the fast race this weekend at Las Vegas. The nine team had a rough start to the year or to the to the weekend crashing out in practice. They were slowly crawling their way back up through the field and then all of a sudden they get hit with this restart penalty in the later part of the race, which pretty much ruined any chance they had of recovering for the day. Um, so at least in that case, NASCAR certainly did not play favorites with their supposed favorite driver, and the, the nine team took a big hit on there. And to be honest, I'm kind of glad to see it. If NASCAR's serious about, hey, we want to stop these games on the restart, we've seen a bunch of crashes, we've seen a bunch of problems, well, they're going to have to start laying down the law. And they did this weekend. They penalized A.J. Allmendinger earlier in the race, and then they penalized Chase Elliott later in the race for more or less the same offense, which is laying back on the restart. NBC did a great job of describing why that's a problem and why you can gain an advantage like that, especially with the Allmendinger penalty when it first happened. They highlighted the fact that because A.J. had given himself a few car lengths of a distance between him and the car in front of him, he was able to accelerate sooner have a higher speed when he reached the start-finish line and therefore was able to pull out and pass a few drivers in front of him that he otherwise wouldn't have been able to pass if he had stayed in the position he was supposed to stay in. That's why he was penalized. It was a similar deal with Chase Elliott. Now, the problem here is consistency. We talk about it a lot with a lot of different penalties and judgment calls of 
is there a consistent way that NASCAR is going to be assessing and enforcing this penalty? Is there a certain number of car lengths that you are uh, allowed to have? Say, you must be within a car length and a half or two car lengths of the, the car in front of you, something like that. I don't know. I don't think – maybe I missed it during the broadcast, but I didn't see any specific details about exactly what NASCAR is looking for here. Um, so that is, that's kind of my open-ended critique on that is if they're going to start enforcing this, I, I do want to make sure that it's consistent and fair across the board because we do know how inconsistency is a common criticism of NASCAR and the way that they enforce their rules. And if they're going to enforce this, they need to continue doing so, not just be a hot topic kind of a thing that falls to the wayside in a couple of weeks or maybe into the beginning of next season. If this is a change that NASCAR wants to make, which I don't disagree with, I think there were probably too many games being played on restart. They do need to make it and make sure that they're consistent and fair in the way that they're enforcing it. Consistency is the name of the game, right? And it's a, it's tough to accomplish sometimes. Uh, but I would just want to clarify, is not supposedly the most popular driver in NASCAR. He's won that award as the most popular driver uh, for several years straight now. Uh, if he lost momentum, we'll find out this year uh, when they have that uh, voting that takes place again. But he he has been the most popular in NASCAR. Also, uh, some of the things that uh, Jay and I have both pointed out and have noticed is that there have been instances when Chase Elliott uh, did exactly the same thing as someone else and it was overlooked versus uh, someone else who does it and gets penalized or gets called out. So what we're observing is not a figment of our imaginations. It is what has happened. So uh, the you bring up a good point that as a fan, I, I get it where you're coming from. It gets tiring to hear that, but it it, it is a reality. So I, I let me make my announcement real quick here. Uh, we in, no, I don't have to. We're on a podcast. No need. Just yeah, that. Okay, so uh, it is a reality that it has happened in the past, but this is a big step. For NASCAR, although it's going to be a difficult step to the points that you make, Mike, uh, it is a difficult step for NASCAR to be consistent with this, but they're going to have to be vigilant. Um, and I agree with Reddick. Uh, it's time that they start calling out these guys uh, for the games that they're playing on the restarts and, and uh, addressing it. Uh, again, it goes back to you've got drivers that won't do those things because it, from their point, it, it's not the way you race one another. It's not in the spirit of the of the race. Uh, and what the spirit of racing is is to uh, go out there and, and do your very best. Uh, and your very best is not laying back on the restart. Um, it, it's taking advantage of your competitors, and it's disrespectful of your competitors. And that's the biggest gripe that I think I have. So many of, of the drivers that have come into the sport do not show respect to their competitors. And um, uh, some, and, and they think it's okay. Uh, and I have less respect for them 
<laughs> for thinking that. So I am glad to see NASCAR taking this step and uh, addressing it because it, it really is in the spirit of competition and being competitive on the track. And I want to see more of that. I heard a conversation on Sirius XM uh, yesterday while I was driving home, and it was a good conversation. My brother was with me, and he said, I'm really enjoying this conversation. But they were kind of having the same conversation between Pete Pistone and Mike Bagley, and they were talking about how uh, how common it is now for drivers to feel that it's okay to knock your competitor out of the way to finish a race. We heard Ty Gibbs say, I had to do it. I had, if I was going to win, it was the only way I was going to win. I had to do it. Um, he's kind of backed off of that a little bit, but so many of the drivers, look at what happened in the ASA Stars Tour. Uh, and those drivers, uh, they were penalized, and I was glad to see that happen. Um, and it's it's time that we start officiating this sport with uh, that kind of integrity. The fact that they rescinded the Team Penske penalty, I think, is a, sign, a, a show of integrity in this sport. The fact that they're now looking at this and, and deciding that they're not going to allow the games and the restarts. That is a sign of integrity within this sport. And I think NASCAR is beginning to draw the line and saying we need to get back to the integrity of this sport and the integrity of competition. And I'm glad to see it. Yeah, this uh, first off, you know, making the rule and saying, hey, stop this, don't do it, uh, was good. Trying to enforce it, um, that's where you come in. And I have great experiences. What's that? No, you're right. It's going to be harder. <laughs> it is, and I'll tell you why. Even if you have a black and white rule, um, Mike talked about this, the consistency. You can't say two feet. You can't be more than two feet back. How are you going to stop of and find out and analyze whether they were two feet back? Now, at this level with, the, with NASCAR, they do have one advantage because they can look at the – telemetry um different things when it comes to the engine you can see when they let off and then when they jumped on the gas again so you have a better judgment call but there's still going to be a judgment call you can't necessarily look at video because unless you have the same shot on every restart of the gap the angle of the camera is going to change what it appears to be as far as the distance between them so the biggest thing I can say is, first off, you, you have to enforce it and eventually penalize somebody. And I'm not saying to make up a penalty just to, to show you're doing it. And having it happen to the winningest driver, the top driver, most popular, whatever it be, helps add credibility to it. I look at the suspension this year with Chase Elliott, whether or not he would get suspended. I mean, that was one that that's sometimes what it takes. And again, I'm not saying you need to go out there and make sure you penalize the top driver. Just if it's wrong, penalize no matter who it is. But that goes back to my thing of even when you make a black and white uh, rule, and I think about the double yellow line at Talladega Daytona, you can't go below it um, to advance your position. Well, then the question becomes, well, we were forced down there. Okay, 
two cars came together. Were they forced down there or was it just an incidental bump? There's still a judgment call involved. When you have post-race damage, it says you can't be outside of this limit, black and white, right? Okay, well, it happened during the race. It's because I bumped the wall or I bumped this. Okay, there's a possibility. They got to make a judgment call. Now you look at it, you're right, you hit the wall. Did you go up there and scrub the wall intentionally? And we saw this on pit road. And I think listening on the radio, it happened this weekend. They penalized somebody because they were supposedly tugging on the car to pull the fender away from the tire or something. But NASCAR felt they were tugging more on it to flare out the fender to get an aero advantage. They had to make that judgment call. The biggest thing I say you can do is don't put NASCAR in that position where they're making a judgment call. So that's the yeah, I mean, that's, don't give them that opportunity. I understand, and this is where, you know, Sharon, you mentioned it from the competition side. You know, everybody's on, uh, on top of their game and want to get that little slightest advantage. So, yeah, they're kind of pushed into that box of trying. But if you push it to that level and then NASCAR's got to make the judgment call, you got to accept their judgment. And, and I think about baseball, just it, what they call a balls and strike. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. there's a zone or whatever, but there's still a judgment call, especially when it comes to something that's really close and hard to determine. And this is one, you know, Mike, I know you were using that example, and I'm sure they do use some footage, video footage of how far back it is. But like I said, the camera angle can, uh, can sway that opinion. Um, the telemetry uh, is another one. But there again, was it they got on the gas and the tires spun, so they just didn't take off, the, you know, whatever it be. There's still ways that they're going to try and push it as um, justified, if you will. Okay, Mike, your follow-up? Yeah, Jay, you make some really good points about exactly how that's going to be officiated, but I don't think it, could, it necessarily has to be an eyeball judgment call by a live person. You look at the way they're officiating pit road right now is very different than the way they officiated pit road 10 plus years ago. They've got, I think it's called the Eagle eye system on pit road where it is all electronically monitored and officiated. And there's very little human judgment that comes into play when it comes to assessing pit road penalties. I'm not sure what it would take to adapt a similar system to use it for on the racetrack, but I don't think it's out of the realm of technological capability there. Some sort of a camera system, maybe also using the onboard positioning of the cars where they have a certain margin that they're looking for there, and that way they have a consistent way of enforcing this penalty as opposed to just, well, I think you've hung back a little bit too far and you're going to get penalized for it. I think that that, that subjective way you know, of, of the eyeball and, and just looking at it and the, and the opinion of the official you've hung back too far, I think that's the incorrect way of doing it. If NASCAR is serious about enforcing this penalty and changing driver behavior, I think they need to make a consistent standard that all drivers know about first and then are held to on the racetrack. Because if they don't know what the actual margin is, that's somewhat unfair to them because Yes, I get what you're saying, Sharon, about the spirit of competition and all that. But at the same time, that's always counterbalanced with the driver's responsibility that's also codified in the rule book to do everything that they possibly can in order to win the race and advance their position. So having that balance of, of yes, we want guys to, to play along and, and make a, a good, clean, fair race, 
that that absolutely is valid. But at the same time, you don't want to hamstring them too much to the point where you're taking away from their ability in order to put that best effort forward to advance their position. I think the way to make that the most fair as possible is to have that, that firm line in the sand of you can go up to this far, but the instant you go even a quarter inch over it, you're coming through for a pass-through. And we see that with pit road speed limit. Uh, for example, pit road speed limit is 45 miles an hour. NASCAR gives them a grace area of five miles per hour. But ask Ty Majeski what happens when you go 50.001, you come down and you serve a penalty because you exceeded that grace area threshold. So that's kind of what I would like to see from NASCAR going forward on this is establish a threshold, whatever that may be, whether it's in terms of car length, whether it's in terms of feet, whatever, and then hold drivers to that standard with a grace area. We know drivers are going to push that edge, whatever that edge may be, but until they know what that number is and have some sort of objective way of measuring it and knowing how close they are, it's somewhat unfair to expect them to say, uh, stay in the correct position on a restart, for, for example, here in this case, if they don't know exactly what that correct position is. If you're going to penalize them, you need to know what box you're going to have to stay in to avoid that penalty. And I think that's what's missing right now from this picture. Okay, let me just say, uh, I think you're both right to a degree. <laughs> um, officiating is a judgment call. We don't have telemetry for the strike zone. <laughs> and officials call and make that judgment call every week when there's a baseball game, whether it's Little League or the Major Leagues. Uh, they don't have telemetry that tells them that this is definitively a strike or definitively a ball. So um, NASCAR, that, what, the perfect world, yeah, we'd have all the telemetry that could tell us that. Um, but we're, we don't live in that perfect world, and we don't have that kind of telemetry. But we do have tools available that NASCAR can use. They have the video replay. They, have, uh, they do have telemetry um, uh, available within the cars. The, so they do have some tools that are currently available. And then maybe we can work on that uh, strike zone telemetry that we need to uh, uh, definitively define what a strike is and definitively define what a ball is. Uh, but right now we don't have that. So it is a judgment call by the official uh, when they make that call. Uh, and uh, the same thing is going to be true in this case. It's still going to be a judgment call by NASCAR. And uh, they'll have telemetry. They'll have the tools that they currently have available to make that judgment call. Uh, but it has to start somewhere, and this is where we're starting with it. And I think it's a good place to go. So um, uh, it is a judgment call. We do have tools available to help in that, making that judgment call, but uh, it, ha it needs to be done because it is a game that people play. They do the same thing on pit road when they speed up and slow down because they know where the markers are that are going to tell them uh, if they're speeding on pit road or not. So. They're gonna. It's a gamesmanship. I get that, but it it's gotten out of control, and it's in many cases it's causing accidents. The only problem that I see 
that could be a problem is somebody if somebody has a mechanical issue and that's where the telemetry inside the car is going to tell NASCAR if there was a mechanical problem that caused that car to hold to uh, stall and and not get started on the restart so uh, I, I I do think that they've got tools available that can help them make the judgment call that needs to be made with some of the gamesmanship that's going on with these restarts. Jay? Yeah, you're right, Sharon. And not being one of the competitors, I'm looking at it. I'm, I have faith that NASCAR is doing the best, making the best judgment call with all the tools they have. Uh, you mentioned the camera. Even if yet per track, you have one uh, secure, steady camera in there on the focused on the restart zone. One from the side and one from above, because I think they both tell a different story when it comes back. Then you have the onboard telemetry system that they can look at when it when it comes to that of each car. Because again, of if if I'm in second place and they say I laid back, well, I can say, hey, that guy didn't, you know, jumped early. So then they got to look at more than one car. Of did that guy go early or did you lay back and go late, slow down and go back up? Um, so they're using all the tools they have available, and there probably are some different ways they can even improve that. But I still long with all of it. I don't think you're ever going to have a black and white. Uh, again, say you just said it of you can't be more than two feet back. Well, if you are, what caused that? What brought that about? Uh, you know, did you spin the tires? It were you shifting gears where it just had a lag in the engine? It was you were just up shifting or down shifting. You know, there are so many variables. Uh, for me, the biggest thing is when you make the judgment call as they've have, you're gonna establish, hey, don't put us in that position. You know, to to even make that judgment call, and then that's on the driver. So. Uh, risk versus reward. You you want to get the advantage. You want to have the as much competitive advantage over your opponent. But if you push it too far, um, you, you're going to be putting putting it in the hands hands of NASCAR. So to make the judgment call. But I do like the fact that they have penalized it. There's been honestly been some throughout the year, uh, more so I think on the Xfinity side anyway where they said, hey, that restart is under review. I watched what they broadcasted. I really expected a penalty. They said, no, that it's good. And again, NASCAR doesn't want to be the one determining the outcome of a race. I know you talk about favorite, uh, the fan favorite or uh, showing special, special treatment towards one. They really don't want to be involved, whether it's throwing a caution, uh, giving, issuing a penalty, they want it to be determined on the track through competition, but there's certain times where they have to step in. Um, and they're in a tough situation. I'll, I'll say that. Like I said, that's one of the aspects of w- working with racetracks that I don't want to be involved in race director and making those calls. Okay. Well, let that be the last word. And Mike, what's your next hot topic? This is an interesting one that Bob Pockers posted out. This is the result of the Ricky Stenhouse fire from Charlotte a couple of weeks ago. Remember, Ricky Stenhouse had some damage on the car. They came in, they repaired it, and shortly thereafter, Ricky's bailing out of the car with a very violent fire going on there. Well, as it turns out, when the crew was repairing the damage in the car, they inadvertently removed and didn't replace a tailpipe basically the end of the, the exhaust tailpipe on the car. That hot exhaust was able to get into the car and set some other stuff on the car on fire. 
NASCAR has since made a rule change very specifically saying that you must have all parts of the exhaust system installed on the car at all times. And they've also made some specific allowances for areas in the car that the team can cut in order to gain access to the exhaust system if necessary in order to put the repairs on the car that are necessary. So real interesting uh, follow-up from NASCAR uh, regarding a pretty scary situation a couple weeks ago. Jay. Jay? Did we lose Jay? Come on. Come on. No, I just had to come off mute there. Um, Again, this from the mechanical technical aspect, I can't go real in-depth, but just looking at the diagrams and and the reading that goes with that tweet from Bob Pockris, NASCAR found something that happened, and this is a case of I don't think it was intentional by the team, but they found that a mistake was made or something left off and NASCAR can address, and they know to watch now. Uh, That is one that uh, take a bad situation, such as what happened with Ricky Stenhouse, dive into it and help the teams, okay, understand what what happened. I I don't even want to say wrong because it just – it wasn't that they were trying to manipulate or do something. It just, uh, I guess, speed or trying to get it fixed or whatever and didn't see the big picture. Now they do. That NASCAR steps in and says, okay, we know this is what caused it, so we're going to make a rule against it. And it's not even necessarily a rule of don't cheat. It's a safety thing of, hey, you've got to have all these pieces on there. Or, you know, you cut into the car from this side, that's going to create this possibility of a problem that they just didn't know before this uh you know i'm sure when they when the team did whatever they did whatever happened they didn't think it was going to cause any other issue so they didn't feel it was important well we saw that it can be so nascar doing a great job they they took the car they looked into it found out what the problem was and what they can do to prevent it from happening again this is one of not like i said a, a rule as far as competitive advantage or anything else it is a safety rule and they just don't want to see this type of situation happen again. So I applaud them for that. And, again, I the team, I'm sure it was one of those they just didn't understand the effect it may have by not doing it or they were in a hurry and just didn't get it done. Don't know. But uh, it's something that NASCAR and I look at and watch. And, again, just let all teams know, hey, if you do this, this could happen. We don't want that. So make sure you do it. Yeah, I really like what I'm seeing from NASCAR this whole year. Uh, I think that they have done a lot this year uh, that is moving in the right direction and will help us have a lot more trust in everything that they're doing. This one, I think, is a good example of intent and NASCAR understanding that there was no intent to do anything illegal here. There was no intent to try to gain a competitive advantage, and they acted accordingly. Um, And the transparency that we've seen from NASCAR this year has been fantastic as well. Um, And by putting this out uh, to everybody so that we can see exactly what they're talking about. Uh, I love the transparency. In years past, we would have never seen anything like this. Um, And uh, NASCAR, uh, you know, is bringing awareness. They're creating awareness. They're educating us as fans. They're educating the teams uh, by being transparent. And I, I think it's all good. I love everything that we're seeing. Um, they, they, they're showing that they're interested in the safety of the drivers. They're interested uh, in, in 
in uh, making sure that the drivers are stay safe and and they're taking the steps that they need to take in order to educate all of us uh, about what happened and especially the teams so that they don't make that same mistake again in the future so um, I, I just love everything that we're seeing from NASCAR. Uh, it, it, we can see exactly where it is. We know exactly what they did. Um, and, and the teams know it, and they know exactly what they need to do to correct it so that that problem doesn't happen again in the future. Um, now, you kind of ruined Ricky Stenhouse's day, so those guys are not going to want to do that again in the future because they don't want to ruin the day. Um, but I just think it's a good example of NASCAR uh, looking at the situation, understanding what it is, and and uh, doing what they need to do on their part to uh, ensure that it doesn't happen again. So uh, again, it, it falls on the teams um, and in what they how they respond to the great things that are happening here and. Uh, uh, making sure that it doesn't happen again. Now, if it, it does happen again, um, that falls on the team. And why didn't they? They understood that it was a safety issue and, and didn't do it. I don't see teams doing this one in that in that uh, vein uh, in this case because those teams are interested in the safety of their drivers as well. So um, I, I just love everything that we're seeing from NASCAR this year. Mike? Unfortunately, Bob did not post this change in the format that a lot of these changes get posted in, where they have the original wording of the rule book lined out and then the changes put in there, because oh. I'm really interested to see what the rule book said before. I would be shocked if, if teams are previously allowed to remove parts of the exhaust system like that. Not only is it a weight issue or even a fire hazard, but even if nothing catches on fire, it's a serious risk of carbon monoxide and other exhaust fumes getting into the car if it's not ducted completely out and away from the car. And that's not just for race cars either. If you have a passenger car, and this is kind of a public service announcement here at this point from a, a pretty lousy amateur mechanic, but if you have just a passenger car with an exhaust leak on it or somebody steals your catalytic converter, it's more than just making a little bit of extra noise. Uh, if that exhaust is not carried completely away from and out of the cabin, whether it's a race car or a passenger car, you're at serious risk of carbon monoxide poisoning and other issues from breathing in those exhaust gases. We've seen race car drivers before where there wasn't even any damage to the exhaust system. There was just some damage to the crush panels or the fender liners that allowed that, that fume to get back into the car and make them sick. And they've had to, I think Tyler Reddick had to come out of the race a couple of times because mm -hmm. he was kind of overcome by those fumes of the race car. So, I would really like to see what change actually happens here. Um, obviously, the, the allowing, they're being very specific about what the team is allowed to modify in the car in order to gain access to make those repairs is great. But I would, like I said, I would be shocked if NASCAR didn't previously say, no, you have to have a whole exhaust system on the race car because it's a serious safety risk beyond just fire here. But I'm with you, Sharon. I really applaud the transparency, not just in this situation, but in general that NASCAR's had this year. Um, in years past, not just uh, you know, the three of us, but fans in general have been very critical about NASCAR kind of keeping things under wraps and behind closed doors. And we talked about, in the previous segment, we talked about consistency. Well, the other one is uh, mm -hmm. objectivity and impartiality, right? The, the less that you make public, the more you open yourself up to those allegations of not being fair or impartial with how the rule book is implemented. So being extremely transparent with 
uh, the various penalties that they've had for modifications to the race car and showing exactly what the team was penalized for. And in this case, changes to the rule book, I think is a great change for NASCAR. And I really like to see it and I hope they continue going down that road because it's been nothing but good for us fans as well as for other race teams to get that feeling that, no, NASCAR is not just picking on us. They're picking on everybody. And this is why they're doing it. Okay. Jay, your follow-up. Yeah, this one, like I said, I view as kind of just a, as something that got overlooked uh, or not understanding the big picture, got in a hurry, again, trying to fix something, get, get the car ready to go through inspection or out onto the track and get practice time, qualifying, whatever it be. So I, I don't think there was like, a, you know, something they were going to try and do every week. Um, but NASCAR is, as I say, you got to save the drivers and the teams from themselves. Like, hey, you may be in a hurry, but this is something you cannot skip over obviously for the reason we saw with the, with the fire starting, the possibility of that, the smoke inhalation or whatever. So they said, Hey, you know, no matter what kind of hurry you're in, whatever, don't, don't do this. You've got to have this on there. And, and a learning thing from all sides of, you know, maybe it wasn't in the rule of, Hey, you have to do this. Now it is because even NASCAR maybe didn't realize all oh, by missing that piece of that, what the possibilities of what could happen were. Now we know so, again, it's more of a just a knowledge in general type situation. Hey, if this piece isn't right, this could happen. We don't want that no more. We're going to make a rule about it. So that's where I'm saying maybe Pockers didn't take, make a rule change because there wasn't a rule because they didn't know it had to be um, just from a knowledge point, not that somebody was trying to circumvent uh, anything, just got overlooked or, like I said, of, my feeling was, like I said, I highly doubt they, they took that chance of, hey, if we leave this part off, will it start a fire? Yeah, but we'll take that chance. I just, I don't see that happening. You know, I think Sharon, you mentioned it. These teams are looking out for their drivers <laughs> as the quarterback and whatever their team in the face of their team, they don't want to see them injured. So I don't think that would be something they would do. Um, so, yeah, I just see it as something that, that was learned. And yes, done. NASCAR wants to make a rule to make sure it doesn't happen again to any team, any fashion, uh, in any way. Yeah, it's kind of like um, the labels that we see now, things that sometimes I read labels and I think, and they say things like, who would do that? But they've got to put it in the la- in the label because somebody did it. <laughs> somebody did it. And so now it's got to be put in black and white and put on the label so that that other person that maybe doesn't understand the ramifications of doing that um so that they don't. Um, that's where I kind of see this one. It, it, it seems like it could be a common sense kind of thing to Mike's point uh, that uh, why wouldn't you cover that? Because those fumes could cause carbon monoxide. The mechanic should have known that and should have taken the step to cover it. But um, they didn't. And so NASCAR's got to put the label out there now, right? Uh, and and to Jay's point, that's probably why we're not seeing the previous rule because uh, in a lot of respects, people may have thought it was a common sense kind of thing. Why would you ever do that? So now that somebody's done it, you got to put it out there and, and you've got to put it on the label, if you will, uh, so that uh, everybody is, does their due diligence about uh, about it. And NASCAR coming out and being uh, transparent so that we all understand 
what the ramifications are and why they're putting this rule out there. Um, it is it's, because somebody did it. So uh, you, it, it might not, it probably wasn't intentional. It probably was in the, in the, for the sake of speed and the, for the sake of getting it out, the car back out on the track. But sometimes you got to uh, take the time to stitch it in order to avoid doing more stitches later on when it rips apart. So uh, this is this is an example of that. So um, what is it? A stitch in time saves time. A, a stitch in I forget what the saying is now, but you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, the, I think it's all good, and again, I applaud NASCAR for everything they're doing, and especially in this case, too. They had to be done. Mike, a stitch in time saves nine. That's what it is. There you go. All right. I was I was about to come <laughs> up with it. I'm glad you found it. Uh, anyway, yeah, um, I don't think this is going to be a major issue going forward. Like you said, this wasn't some sort of intentional thing that, oh, well, we've exposed this new trend that teams are doing. I don't think that's the case at all here. I think the clarity and very specific things that NASCAR has laid out there hopefully is an uncommon situation, right? We don't want to see um, exhaust pipes get damaged to the point where either they're a carbon monoxide or especially not a fire risk. Um, but these things happen. It's race cars, right? So the fact that there's some clarity about how that situation should be handled exactly, I think, is a good thing. But I don't think it's going to change how we see the next three races play out for the remainder of the season here or anything like that. Hopefully we don't have any more fires because fires and race cars, they, they go together like oil and water. They, they mix great. They're a very yeah. common companion, but we never want to see them together. So hopefully we don't have any more fires, especially not big violent ones like that, like we saw in the 47 car. That was no good. So – Hopefully that's that's the end of that, and uh, we can keep moving on for the rest of the season. Yeah, add NASCAR doing its due diligence on these types of things is uh, one of the many good things they're doing this year. Okay, um, why don't you start us up on our closeout here in our roundtable? Sure, not a problem. It's going to be Mike underscore Zell on Twitter, Mike double underscore O on Reddit. Um, I might be available next week. Man, they've been working me like a rent and mule the past few weeks. So that's, I'm, I'm sorry I've been missing so many shows, but it's just how it's kind of laid out. Uh, I will be on the next time I'm on, and I look forward to talking to you all then. Well, we'll look forward to that then, too, Jay, uh, Mike. Jay, you want to go ahead and do your sign-off? All right. You can follow me on Facebook, Michael Hoosman, Mopar MJ8, on Twitter, and uh, X. Darn it, I was getting better about it, uh, on X, formerly known as Twitter, and then Instagram. Uh, this weekend you'll see a little bit about uh, motocross racing as I got one more trip to Tennessee to do that. And, Sharon, you always make a point to thank me. I want to thank the entire Fan for Racing crew this week. I know our fantasy picks are going to be uh, in rapid succession and short notice because <laughs> with as busy as I've been, I had forgot to put them up. Uh, so they didn't go up until last night. But I appreciate everybody uh, trying to nudge the next person and being cooperative and getting them in. So thank the entire crew here this week. We have an outstanding crew, and uh, I really appreciate our Fan for Racing crew. And, and Jay, you 
uh, for being here uh, every Thursday for our podcast. I know you filled in for uh, Sal a few times here, and uh, I, I really do appreciate it. And, Mike, you always bring an interesting perspective to the table, and uh, I, you've done a few articles this year, and uh, they're, they're always good uh, commentary pieces. So thank you for everything that you guys are doing. And, Jay, you do such a great job with us, with our uh, – our fantasy group. It's just amazing. Um, but uh, I wanted to say I was at Las Vegas Motor Speedway this weekend. I did put one article out uh, with regard to uh, Riley Earp's winning. We had his uh, the entire uh, media interview on our Monday night show, and uh, there were some really good uh, uh, cases in there about how happy Riley was, and and he's poking fun a little bit at the media. Uh, he talked about the 100th win from Stuart Haas Racing. Uh, yeah, Riley Earps. Uh, who thought that was going to happen? <laughs> uh, but it happened. Riley Earps got that 100th win for Stuart Haas Racing. Um, it, it was a good interview, and uh, I was really happy for Riley to get that victory. Uh, and uh, he thought it was 10 seconds, and he was correct and told it was uh, actually closer to 15 seconds. So um, uh, he, he was really pleased to hear that. But um, I am working on a couple of our other articles coming out of Las Vegas, and I'm, I'm probably going to put them out during the off season. Um, a friend of mine uh, has a brother who is a professional Santa Claus, and he lives out in Las Vegas. And... Uh, we took him to his first NASCAR race, so I am um, <laughs> going to do an article about Santa Claus going for his first NASCAR race in Las Vegas, uh, and we're working on that. And then the other thing that happened is as we were leaving, uh, there was a gentleman at the gate, and uh, I don't know, they were having some lively conversation, and it was good-humored and everything else, and we kind of got drawn into it. And it turns out that this gentleman came from, uh, uh, he's Britain. He came from uh, London, in fact, and I got to talking to him, and in the process of talking to him, he missed his ride uh, back to his car, so we gave him a ride back to his car. And I decided I'm going to do an article about this fellow because he was talking about how um, – he was coming to America because he was so interested in American motorsports. So he's not only got – this was his first NASCAR race that he went to, uh, but he also is going to other forms of motorsports and racing there as well. So I thought, well, that would be kind of a cool article to write as well. So he and I are in touch. Uh, we're emailing back and forth with uh, some of his, some responses, and I'll be writing about uh, that guy from Britain <laughs> as well uh, during the offseason. Uh, he, he was a lot of fun, and I think it'll be a fun article as well. So uh, look for those coming along, and uh, I um, uh Again, uh, I'm very happy uh, to say that we'll be back again on Monday with our review of the races in Homestead and next Thursday for our preview of the Martinsville races. So uh, with that, thanks to our listeners once again, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again on the other side. With that, we'll call it a wrap. Have guys. a good one.
Have a good day and weekend. Good night, everybody. <laughs>